Welcome to the podcast. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel. I have Alexander Bloom with me, who's the founder and managing partner at Two Prime, which is a digital asset investment firm. Uh, Alex, it's great to be speaking with you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on. So, Alex, uh, I'm very curious and, and I want to pick your brain on a lot of things because you're on the forefront of getting investments from institutions and wealthy individuals and so forth. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, can you tell us a bit about your background? Where are you from? Where, where did you grow up? Yeah, um, it's been kind of a winding path. I mostly grew up in Southern California uh, and then uh, for part of high school, lived in Arizona. I went to undergrad in Boston. Uh, I was in the Peace Corps in Panama for a number of years, which is when I first kind of sort of thinking about and finding uses for uh, Bitcoin or, or non, non-centralized monies to do remittances to the poor. Um, and then most recently I've lived, I lived on a hippie commune in Vermont for a couple, a couple months, like six months. And um, most recently was in New York City for about two and a half years and then moved out here to Denver, Colorado where I have a home and will be staying for a while uh, about, about two and a half years ago. So. Uh, yeah, it's been kind of all over the place. And uh, I think you asked me, how did I get into crypto or was that part of the question? Yeah. You, you know, uh, how did you uh, first discover cryptocurrencies and how did that lead to creating uh, Two Prime? So after I was in the Peace Corps, where I lived, there was no phone service and no internet, no electricity, um, but a lot of people still had phones. I was in the Peace Corps from 2010 to 2012. And during that time, while I was away, uh, smartphones really became ubiqu- ubiquitous, but I didn't kind of see that transition. I just came back and there was, everybody had a smartphone all of a sudden. And I just really got to thinking, wow, if you could get phone service out to rural places, there's so many things you could do, including sending remittances amongst other things. Uh, but these people didn't have bank accounts. And so I became very interested in alternative ways to send international remittances. And at the time, uh, Ripple was a solution and you could send Bitcoin over Ripple. Uh, and so... Yeah, we were emailing with Ripple and finding ways to both set up low-cost telecom networks and, and to figure out ways to send money across that network. Uh, and then once you kind of 
go down that rabbit hole, just the intersection of, you know, politics and culture, society, economics, all of it, you know, it's kind of hard to, to look away at that point. Uh, and so then, yeah, as the industry kind of matured, I had some experiences working for a venture capital fund that was looking at crypto mining very early on, um, and then did some stuff for the Gates Foundation and the World Economic Forum around humanitarian applications, uh, as well as some uh, censorship and privacy issues related to uh, blockchain technologies in general. Uh, then I, when I was living in New York, started a broker dealer that was raising investment via security tokens. So we were providing both the software side of it and then also doing the fundraising as a, a regulated broker dealer in New York. And then some of us that uh, were investors in that uh, created a hedge fund that uh, just kind of focused on the asset management or financial side of it, um, which I can tell you a bit more about, but that's sort of how I, I ended up here. Yeah. And, and I saw in, in your LinkedIn profile, you're at the uh, Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, the work, uh, it sounds like you did some great work there. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on the Mojo Loop and, and I think Ripple's involved in that, you know, it's kind of come full circle maybe for you given, you know, you, you were connected to Ripple in the early days. So Mojo Loop is like a, was a way to kind of use digital monies, right, to, uh, be interconnected or interoperable, I think. I, I don't know that much about it, to be honest, but I think that um, generally, I mean, getting, I guess my experience in the Peace Corps was that there's very motivated and intelligent people that just didn't have access to, to capital uh, or opportunity um, and that were perfectly competent and capable. And I think to me that became the biggest barrier wasn't that they you know couldn't do things or they didn't have ideas it was that no they didn't have the funding to do it and so it was a major just impossible hurdle to get over and so i think technologies in general that open up access to, to capital and the easy flow of it are, are generally good uh, i think you know i don't know to be honest a lot about mojo other than i know that interoperability amongst different you know digital or phone-based currencies uh is an issue just as it is for some blockchains to be interoperable. And I think improving that system is, um, is important, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't pretend that I know much about it. Sure. Uh, so I have to ask, uh, what do you hold in your personal crypto portfolio? Yeah. So honestly, I mean, I have a, a pretty large exposure to our fund, which is, um, you know, the main fund is just Bitcoin and ETH uh, and uses options to hedge, downside risk effectively, uh, or another way to look at it is we make money when things go down while everyone else is losing money. Um, so that's one fund we have, I, I can get more into. And then the other fund is a yield fund. So uh, is buying a, a basket of different currencies, but we're just trading spot against future and also doing some DeFi staking to, to get a, you know, around a 13 to 15% annualized yield. Uh, other than that, I, I invest in some venture funds that they invest in um, cryptocurrencies directly or, you know, pre-private sales of tokens, stuff like that, especially in the creator or NFT ecosystem. Um, but I have pretty large exposure through our funds. And so the other stuff I own is, is non-crypto. Got it. So uh, you mentioned for two prime, the respective funds, uh, the primary assets are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, are, are there plans to add more ex exposure to other uh, crypto assets? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the first fund, which is buying and holding Bitcoin and Ether and then using options to manage downside risk protection, really evolved to manage my own portfolio and my partner, 
Mark Fleury's portfolio. Mark is the founder of a large software company called JBoss that was acquired by Red Hat for uh, several hundred million dollars in 2006. And so both of us were interested in not losing the money we had. I've been through a number of kind of boom and bust cycles in crypto, and it doesn't feel good when you know it goes down 80 or 90 percent, and you know suddenly you're not buying that second house. Um, and so that is the main purpose of that first fund and it's you know done quite well uh the, because it uses options it's limited by you know where is there an actual options market and so right now there's only significant enough volume for the, the size of fund we are in, in bitcoin and ether uh you know i think that you will see other you know top tier uh digital assets start to introduce a robust options market uh in the months and years to come um, probably th see things on the CME or Deribit is one of the primary venues for options trading. But uh, so if that arose and then that additional currency, cryptocurrency had some diversification and was doing things Bitcoin and Ether weren't doing, um, then we'd definitely consider it. But uh, right now that it's more of a structural limitation than it is anything uh, on our end. Sure. Uh, can you tell us about the... Uh assets under management, what's the number right now as far as the dollar and what type of demand you're seeing from institutional investors? Yeah, so you know, we were trading our own money uh, using this option strategy since the beginning of 2020 and then, um, which is really when any options were available. Uh, we opened up as an outside investment vehicle uh, in February. So we had about 40 million of our own money and then we opened it up to Outside investors should be first, and now we're somewhere in the first one around $100 million. I haven't checked today, but uh, around that around that level, which considering things have been down quite a bit the last two months isn't, isn't too bad. Um, and then we just launched at the beginning of this last month, this yield fund that uh, I, you know we, the founder, just put a couple million dollars in to get it started and have started talking to people about, but is, is relatively small at this time, though there's a huge interest and demand for yield. In terms of you know, institutions and money managers and money managers in general, I think, uh, obviously when things are going up 40% a month, it's much easier to raise money because everyone has FOMO and wants to get into things, but um, our fund really does well, or sort of like, uh, you know, like raison d'etre uh, is uh, during times when things are down because everyone's a genius when everything's going up 40%, but to have that downside risk protection suddenly makes a lot of sense when things drop 25, 30% in a month. And so, um, yeah, we've seen, you know, there's institutions or money managers have a very different kind of mindset than the individual retail buyer uh, in the sense that, you know, the main priority they have is I don't want to lose my job. And the main barrier to investing in crypto for themselves or their uh, investors is they don't want to look foolish. So like, even if Bitcoin goes up 50%, like nobody, nobody gets mad at you, as mad at you if you don't didn't buy Bitcoin. But if you own Bitcoin, it goes down 80%, and someone's portfolio is screwed. It looks completely irresponsible and ridiculous. And so, offering a fund to people like that that's professionally managed, that's led by reputable people that have their own skin in the game, and also has protection against those big downward moves is a huge comfort to, to institutions and something they can go to their investors or their investor board and say, hey, like this is a, a thing I can stand behind. Like I'm not gonna lose, de destroy my career because uh, I bought Bitcoin or something like that. And so the same, we've seen a lot of people that are, you know, grayscale investors that all of a sudden like that grayscale trade isn't looking so good. The grayscale shares are trading below NAV. And so if there's something that could be 
risk managed, doesn't have that uh, risk of going trading below NAV or isn't subject to secondary market dynamics. Uh, it's also really attractive to people and we have the same lockup period and similar fees to them. So uh, yeah, on the yield side, you know, there's on the yield fund, it's rather nascent, but uh, obviously things you can find in either trading spot against future or doing DeFi staking of stable coins is so much higher yield than even high risk corporate bonds or anything you can find in public markets. And there's all of a sudden in our world, a ton of new money that's been printed and very low interest rates. And so uh, the prospect that you can get double digit yield from a place with, with relatively low risk is really attractive. Uh, I think the challenge is just having the institutional kind of checking the boxes of, oh, do you have a, are you regulated? Do you have a fund admin? Do you, how do you, just explaining to people the mechanics of how DeFi works or keeping track of it to show people, here's what's happened to your money every step along the way. Um, again, people just want to make sure, you know, they don't lose their jobs. And so um, that's a process. And luckily we have all those boxes checked and it's just a matter of time to kind of work through that process with people. That's awesome. Um, what type of, in, of individuals or, or if you want to say institutional investors are, are using your or participating in your fund? Yeah, so um, one is you, like... You probably can't give names, but if you can, you know, maybe as far as category, like family offices, things like that. Yeah, so uh, there's, I'd say four categories. One is just high net worth individuals like uh, myself or my partner that... We understand crypto, uh, understand that it's a thing that's not going to disappear and that it makes sense to have it as, you know, a portion of a portfolio. If you just look at the kind of historical returns or risk reward of owning Bitcoin by itself, it makes pretty much any portfolio look better over the last 10 years. And so uh, there's a category of those people, but, you know, that are professionals or understand tech, but they're not going to sit in front of a screen and trade and worry about this every day. They just want someone that they can trust to take care of it. So that's one bucket. Another is like small to medium-sized RIAs that have, you know, are under pressure because their, you know, clients are saying, hey, everyone else is in Bitcoin. How come you don't have something to offer me for Bitcoin? Um, and so offering a product for them where they can put their clients into something that's professionally managed, but also isn't going to have as much risk as just owning some random cryptocurrency uh, is, is another bucket. Uh, as you mentioned, family offices, which is, I mean, just another form of a, basically a small institution, but groups that, again, understand crypto, understand it's here to stay and, and are able to make more autonomous decisions or relatively quick decisions um, is another. And then the fourth is surprisingly some venture capital funds we've had who just have money kind of sitting, waiting to be deployed. And they're saying, hey, if you can insure me, I'm not gonna you know, lose all my money if Bitcoin drops because you're managing the risk. Uh, or if you could put me into a yield fund, that's that's really attractive to me to, to make some extra money while I'm waiting to invest in startups or, or uh, other kinds of companies. Uh, we've talked, we've spoken to a number actually of uh, central banks of some governments, um, yeah. some other Latin American governments that uh, people aren't quite talking about yet. And I've talked to, to a number of sovereign wealth funds, but uh, it's just a different mindset. And they they move very slowly, and so um, they're ongoing conversations, but don't have them as investors quite yet. That's exciting, though, to hear that uh, they're they're at least having the conversation, the, the discussions happening at the table. And uh, to your point, maybe they're slow moving, but it's interesting to see all of these different folks now looking at crypto and looking at investing in it. 
Yeah, um, you know, it's just why I think there's such a sort of bipolar thinking errata where some people just see it as this speculative kind of get rich quick scheme. And then you have these diehard people that see it as the only safe possible place to put your money in the world in these conditions. And I think there's a third approach where you just look at what it's done historically. There's enough track record, at least on, on Bitcoin, that you can say, hey, this thing seems to have some patterns that I can incorporate into a portfolio. And so uh, it just kind of makes sense from a like kind of asset management perspective. But there's such a variance of psychology of what Bitcoin is or how it makes sense as an investment. Is it a gamble? Is it the opposite of a gamble? Is it inflation protection? And I think there's still uh, various narratives cohering around those things. So uh, you spoke a bit about some of the strategies, I guess you would call it, or tactics um, of how you've um, been able to have success and grow the fund and so forth. Um, given the current market pullback, uh, are there any insights or strategies that you can share that you guys have been doing? Um, so I guess there's a couple of things. One is, you know, on the, on the most surface level, what we do isn't extremely complicated in terms of the goal. The goal is we want to provide protection by puts effectively. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how familiar with the options language, but by puts or put protection so that uh, we're not as exposed to the downside as uh, you would just owning Bitcoin or Ether outright. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to uh, miss the upside of Bitcoin and Ether. And so what's difficult is not to buy protection or have protection, but because the volatility of Bitcoin and Ether are very high, the expense of buying that protection of buying options is very high. And so you could end up spending 20% of your whole portfolio a month just protecting against something moving downwards, which may, may never move downwards that month. And so the real challenge is making good decisions around, okay, when does it make sense to buy puts? How do we buy them? Can we sell calls to finance those puts in an effective way so that we're not wasting all the money of the fund just buying protection? Uh, and so uh, making the good decisions around when we're in high risk volatility environments in both the micro and macro scales like oh like in the last two days we've gone up you know six standard deviations much more than the average uh is a good indicator things are going to fall back down and so even though uh bitcoin and eth seem to behave unlike any other asset you know our backgrounds and our cio's background is in creating public market volatility so things like uh derivatives of the vix like uh uvx or vxx but highly volatile uh public market financial instruments. And so the same kind of statistics generally apply to, to Bitcoin and Ether that, you know, if things go up crazy amount, they're going to come back down. And the, the same behaviors uh, are, are somewhat consistent and you can find statistics around that stuff. Um, what's a bit different is that it tends to move more on an exponential scale rather than a linear scale. And there's over the long term, not as much mean reversion as you'd find in something like the VIX, um, which is because there's a finite supply of it and not an infinite supply. And so as you get more and more, more people interested in it, the price goes up, but you can, so it's generally what we're trying to do is blending these, you know, traditional market back statistical, you know, measures of trading volatility and then incorporating some crypto specific ones and, you know, other things like movements of crypto on and off exchange, uh, major whale activity, um, you know, the, like the death cross or, you know, things like that. And then 
The other thing that you know we do at our fund is just look at the nature of volatility. So like the derivative, vol the volatility of volatility, are things getting more volatile over time or are they getting less volatile over time? And so we kind of understand that as these different sort of regimes or different kind of phases of how Bitcoin and Ether behave. And we could say, oh, we're in a high volatility, increasing volatility behavior right now. That tends to coincide with these kind of market moves or we're in a low volatility, decreasing behavior right now. And that has different market characteristics and we can make pretty good decisions around how to trade based upon some of those uh, statistics as well. Uh, I have to ask, uh, and I know sometimes these things are under NDA and, and ready for PR releases and so forth, but any hints as to what we can expect from two prime sometime this year or later this year? Um, you know, there's nothing incredibly secret or anything like that we just have, the, you know, we just released this second product uh, and, you know, I think the rest of it will just be in making those things better, growing them more. Uh, increasingly, we're looking into the DeFi side of things to find better yield as like the spot versus future markets, the spread has tightened significantly. And so I think a lot of people are looking for better ways to find yield. Uh, we're already doing some of that. Um, but no, you know, at our fun, it's not, we're not doing press releases every week and having crazy announcements. It's just doing the couple things we do consistently and well. And, uh, you know, again, people, our investors aren't looking to get rich next month. They're looking for an investment for the next five, 10, 20 years. And so for us, it's just about consistency, doing what we're saying we're going to do and, and not really rocking the boat too much. Sure. Um, quick, quick question on a Bitcoin ETF. Everyone is kind of in anticipation of the SEC approving one or more this year. Um, what does your gut tell you, uh, do you, do you, given we've seen a lot of movements from some big players throwing their hat in their wing, ring at Kathy Woods and, and so forth. Um, do you think we will get one or two approved this year? And would you guys participate in any way uh, with, with any of the Bitcoin ETFs? Yeah, so... Um... I'd say, first off, I don't know. Uh, I do know that uh, Grayscale and some others are hiring ETF specific, specific job roles. And I know that they have ongoing conversations with the government. And so uh, it surmises to, to think that, you know, they're not just hiring people randomly, that they have some good sense that they're going to need those jobs for a reason. Sure. Um, you know, but that, you know, whether that's this year or next year, you know, I think you're just on a political perspective. You've just added it, you know, this is the first year of a new uh, presidential administration and a new SEC. And so is a Bitcoin ETF and all the kind of regulation around that, the top of their agenda, the first year of, of uh, the administration. Uh, I though in the Bitcoin world, it seems like all that exists is Bitcoin. I'm not sure that that really is <laughs> top priority uh, for those people. That being said, you know, there's other countries like Canada, as we know, and several European countries that are introducing uh, Bitcoin ETFs and Ether ETFs. And so uh, there is, I think, increasingly some pressure from the SEC to offer or, or allow American, country, American companies to innovate and compete in that marketplace. And so um, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you when it's going to happen, but I, I would be shocked if it wasn't by the end of next year uh, and pleasantly surprised if it was um, this year. I know that I believe the Vanek ETF is due for some kind of decision to be made uh, pretty soon though. They, they always just keep extending these things yeah. out. Would we directly participate in anything? Um, no, not really. I mean, an ETF is just a public way. I mean, the real benefit of ETF is that a lot of public 
market traders or large investment firms can invest in a product that's regulated up to their investment mandates. Uh, we're not, we're a private fund. Uh, and so we're not really limited or constricted in that way. And so just having a wrapper around a regular Bitcoin, it doesn't just adds complication for us. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think we'd benefit from the rise in price that a, an ETF would uh, initiate, but uh, we wouldn't directly buy or sell one. Got it. So speaking of price, um, obviously we've had a correction. Uh, do you feel we are still in a bull market? Um, some are saying we might double peak like we, well, Bitcoin will might double peak like it did in 2013. What are your thoughts on what's, what's currently happening? Yeah. So, well, again, um, you know, we just look at statistics and mostly are reacting to the market. We're not trying to make predictions. Uh, we're just always trying to maintain protection and uh, capture some of the upside when we can. So on a fun perspective, I get to, I mean, we don't know. We can just analyze the numbers. I can tell you, if you look at like the options market, the market is betting on a Q3 and Q4 secondary rally of the price is where the skew of options, people are buying calls that are, you know, above the current price, suggesting they think the price is going to go up. And that's where the majority of calls are, are placed currently. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a positive thing. If you look at futures markets, the spread on like one month futures is uh, very low, negative or, or very close to this year right now, which means in the short term, people are guessing it's not going up this month. Uh, and three, six or year long spreads, there's uh, slight contango or, you know, the, the future is higher than the current spot price. Uh, but it's, you know, a couple months ago, the, the futures were trading at 25, 30, 35% above spot. And now it's more in like the single digits. And so there's a more muted kind of futures buying behavior in the market as a whole. But, you know, if you get, you see a rally that all that stuff changes in, in an hour. And so it's, it also can be kind of a, not that useful of a thing to look at. Um, from a personal or kind of more fundamental look at it, I know that there are a number of large financial institutions that are making moves into the space. Uh, we also, you know, everybody knows there's countries that are starting to make moves into the space. Uh, there are a number of additional technical rails for like medium and small size banks to allow people to buy Bitcoin directly through their bank accounts. Um, things like that NYDIG are, are working on, for example. And so, I think there's still a lot of strong and fundamental changes that are opening up the world economy to be able to buy and trade Bitcoin and Ether, as well as, you know, at some point a Bitcoin ETF will hit the, the North American or rather US market. And so uh, I personally think that, well, I think we're at the low or, you know, the 30, 32 is held pretty strong here for a while and we'll see a divergence upward at this point. But uh, I could also be wrong. It'll either go up or down though, for sure. <laughs> uh, let's say we we have that another, another bull run up, another peak. Um, do you have a, a, a Bitcoin price prediction? Um, no, <laughs> I don't, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that bought Bitcoin between 32,000 and its previous peak around, uh, I think it was 64 or so. And so that's a lot of people that, you know, a lot of people wait, like retail buyers wait, they get to, I, I bought at 50,000 and then they're like, shit, I'm down a bunch. It gets back to 50,000, they just want out. It's been too painful. And so you have a lot of buying behavior. You have to kind of chop through all these uh, basically, you know, ceilings that, you know, all these people that want to get out at these various prices. And then, uh, you know, around that 62, 64 price where when the Coinbase IPO is happening, there's 
a lot of trading activity, which means you might have a lot of resistance there. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's, uh, I don't think anybody could tell you for sure, but um, yeah, I, I guess we'll see. For sure. <laughs> uh, I want to get your thoughts on what's happening with Bitcoin mining. Um, we saw China, I don't, want, I don't know if it's a ban or whatever it may be, but look, the miners are leaving China and they're going to Kazakhstan. Some are coming to the United States. Um, some are saying this is good because it breaks up the mining pool that was in China, it decentralizes the mining. And it's good to see that the US is getting some of that respective uh, hash rate. What are your thoughts on the whole situation? And, and look, it's been something that's been considered FUD, but it seemed, from my opinion, from my perspective, it seems like a good thing long-term. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's FUD, right? Like if you have a major, basically the producers of Bitcoin, a major block of them are out of business or at least severely inconvenienced in what they can do and need to move expensive equipment and change up operations and move to other countries, register businesses in new countries, find partnerships in new countries. Uh, it's not an inconsequential thing. It'd be like, you know, I have a gold mining operation in California and then suddenly I have to move it to Kazakhstan just because there's gold there. It's not like, that's not just like a minor, uh, no pun intended, minor problem. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, there's like that's a big disruption because it's not just like, there's miners that aren't making money. Those miners are whole economies themselves. They're trading Bitcoin, they're making other investments. They're, you know, they feed a lot of other investment firms because that's who they're doing transactions with. They're on exchanges. And so it kind of flows or it's almost, I don't know, I guess trickle down or trickle up, but it, it flows into the whole ecosystem as a whole. Uh, that being said, you know, I think that a lot of the miners in, in Asia are very wealthy. And so, you know, they're going to do whatever it takes to keep making money uh, if they're at a significant enough scale. Uh, and it's, you know, a lot of people don't like um, Talib in the uh, Bitcoin world, the, the writer, but uh, this is kind of an anti-fragile moment where, yeah, everyone said, you know, Bitcoin, you know, China's gonna shut it down and then the whole thing's over, but that's no longer a, a significant risk to the Bitcoin network. Those that do survive, miners that move out of China, well, they're pretty robust, strong businesses that are now even stronger that aren't restricted to a current jurisdiction or some kind of sudden regulatory move. Additionally, you know, there's, you know, competition amongst countries to find new sources of revenue. And so, you know, it may not be of interest to China uh, and maybe some other jurisdictions, but uh, second and third tier economies that want new businesses, want new tax money, want new ideas, uh, or you want want you know people to rent spaces and pay for electricity? Uh, there's always going to be others that are going to be interested in that, and so um, the you know people will find places to make money if there's if there's profit in it. Uh, and then you know on the on the U.S. side, I think yeah you know increases has increased the portion of you know the mining hash rate in the United States, and is you know going to temporarily make mining you know the per terawatt or per kilowatt, you know, mining more profitable because the difficulty in, in competition is slightly lower for, for the time being. And, you know, I think in the long-term, medium-term, long-term things will uh, recover and, and become even stronger than it was before, but it's uh, definitely not like an easy path for a lot of those miners. Sure. And along the lines of uh, mining, um, Elon Musk, obviously, 
couple of months ago, um, or maybe not a couple of months ago, but he came out and said, Tesla, we're going to halt Bitcoin payments until the, and then he followed up by saying they will allow payments again once the mining hits 50% renewable energy. You know, what are your thoughts on Elon and all his tweets and shenanigans and memes and all of that and, uh, and his stance on, on what's happening? Yeah, so, you know, I think a number of things. One is, um, it's not like electricity and energy isn't bad. What's bad, you know, for most of us who believe in global warming and the earth getting hotter every single year is the proliferation of fossil fuels or carbon emission into the environment. And so um, there's no problem. Like the human progress is directly correlated to the amount of energy that we produce. And so the problem isn't that Bitcoin uses energy. The problem is that some of it comes from non-sustainable sources. Uh, I think generally, you know, Bitcoin, the main expense to miners is their, you know, fixed cost of electricity and renewable energies just happen to have lower fixed costs. And so there's an incentive to find cheaper sources of energy or even innovate around some of that. Like there's another Denver company, Crusoe Energy, that helps people, uh, oil miners, instead of doing natural gas flaring, convert that into energy and, and mine Bitcoin with it. And so... Uh, that being said, I think that people in the crypto world want to be like, oh, this is complete bullshit. Like all Bitcoin can ever do is save the world. And the reality is it uses up a lot of energy. Uh, I guess it's a question of what you think Bitcoin is kind of going back to that, you know, bipolar perception of Bitcoin either being really valuable and important or just a speculative asset. You know, it, if it's becoming the global reserve currency, then if you compare it to the energy costs of what the US dollar takes to keep an operation and all the oil and petrodollar implications of that, Bitcoin is a tiny, tiny fraction of the energy expenditure. If you yeah. compare it to just some kind of speculative thing, then it seems like a crazy waste of energy. And so I think some of it is a perception issue around the importance or significance of, of what Bitcoin is and, and what energy expenditure is reasonable. Uh, I think another just funny thing is, you know, like I, I don't know a Tesla, I own a, a, a Porsche, but it's a, an electric car, electric Porsche. And it's electric, but like, where do you think the electricity comes from for Teslas? It's just oil and gas and coal being converted into electricity and put into a car. And so, um, you know, I don't think that 50% of the electricity that's powering Teslas is uh, from sustainable sources either. And, but you know, there's societal and cultural acceptance of the value of electric cars and you know, you know, electric vehicles and Tesla as a whole. But uh, in reality, it's uh, pretty much the same the same problem and the same sources. Um, I think other than that, you know, I think you know, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes at Tesla, and I don't know Elon Musk, but uh, I have a feeling it wasn't just his own um, decision or you know, to be a renewable energy company and you're probably received a lot of pressure around doing some kind of stance or reform around the value of Bitcoin. Um, the last point I would make is just that, you know, it really speaks to the nascency of um, the Bitcoin, you know, economic system as a whole, that there's, you know, one billionaire with some opinions that can really affect the price and perception of the whole industry and, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of jobs in general. That being said, if you look at just the statistics of what was happening to the price of Bitcoin and buying behavior leading up to a tweet that moved the price down, 
if it wasn't going to be that tweet, something else was going to return the price of Bitcoin downwards because it was just so overbought. And so I think it's also a question of uh, what we attribute uh, cause and effect to in, in, in uh, market dynamics as well. Yeah, to, to your point, like, uh, and some people were saying we kind of overshot a little bit, you know, uh, looking at previous market cycles, the run up was just so strong and it was due for a correction for sure. Um, you know, as far as U.S. crypto regulations, and and I, I don't know what you, uh, it's kind of along the lines of Bitcoin ETF. Um, it seems like Congress and there's different uh, lobbying happening and and a need for uh, more regulations. And this under the SEC, there's a you know the, the Bitcoin ETF approval, and there's also they're handing out lawsuits and a specifically one to Ripple over XRP, which a lot of people are looking at. Uh, what are your thoughts on the whole situation? There's a lot of things on, on the SEC's plate. It seems like Congress is moving in the direction of proper crypto regulations. And uh, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts or you know of anything happening that you can share. Yeah, so I think generally, you know, regulation is like, it's funny just to observe uh, a thing, a digital asset that's whole kind of existence was based upon not being subject to government decisions and centralized financial systems then coincide with the regulator who's basically the referee of the centralized financial system trying to wrap their heads around it. I would say that they have a really difficult task. It's just like trying to like shut off the internet. Like it's not, you can't, there's no flip switch for Bitcoin. I mean, the biggest flip switch was probably China being able to shut down miners and that, you know, it's not, not sufficient. Um, so I think it's a really difficult task and like a, just at some level an irreconcilable uh, mismatch of, of goals and values. Um, that being said, I think that for widestream mainstream adoption, most of the money isn't individuals speculating and trading stocks in Bitcoin. Most of the money is massive institutions with massive regulation, you know, that are basically extensions of the government. And they can't, even if they think Bitcoin is the best investment and they would be crazy not to do it, if it's not regulated in a way that's going to pass muster at these large institutions, they're, they're not gonna be able to do anything. And so, um, you know, regulation has to happen for adoption to occur. And it's, you know, really an amazing thing that Bitcoin's gotten to the point where it's annoying enough to people that it needs to be regulated. Like, you know, there's so many, there's so many things that aren't regulated that are problems because nobody cares about them enough. They're not big enough problems for the government to take notice. Uh, for us, you know, we, we trade only Bitcoin and Ether. They're regulated as commodities in the United States. And so it's pretty straightforward regulation. Like I'm not worried the U.S. is going to make Bitcoin illegal tomorrow. I think that's well, well passed at this point. Uh, on terms of the Ripple side, that comes down to securities law regulation. Um, and I think that's really difficult. Again, uh, you've created something that can be scaled and distributed and sold without any kind of, you know, filing with the SEC and just a technological possibility to do that. That And the technology goes way faster than any regulation or rule. And the regulator looks back and goes, oh, that wasn't allowed and you shouldn't have done that. But they never tell you in advance. Right. So it puts companies and entrepreneurs in a really difficult position because you're always worried you're in trouble, but you'll never find out till after you do the thing wrong. Uh, I think in the case of Ripple, you know, I can't speak to the specifics of the, the ruling or, or the current kind of dispute amongst things, but I'd say that uh, it does seem like the, you know, rules have been unfairly, you know, applied to different places and it's just 
a difficult position. I think also though Ripple's just been selling tokens into the market. I mean, that's their business is they sell tokens and profit from it. I don't think they're doing a lot of good for many people other than the owners of, of Ripple. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, the SEC also is trying to protect, I mean, the SEC is fucked up. Like the, the rules around how they try to protect people are um, anachronistic rules from a time before technology where it was, it was today. It's like the accredited investor rule. It says if they have a million dollars net worth or income of $200,000 over the last two years, it's a very gross tool to try to decide who is financially sophisticated and who wasn't at a time when tech and, and sophistication were very different than they are today. And so you end up having basically the best investments, the most successful ways to get yourself out of poverty or, or middle income, middle-class living are barred from you. And so that seems incredibly unfair. You have technology software developers who are building these protocols that are so, more, so much more sophisticated than most of the investors that have the money to buy these things, yet they're barred from owning or trading the thing that that seems uh, completely absurd but and so I think you have this you know I don't think the SEC is out to like screw people but I think that they're a large institution trying to keep up with innovation that uh, is well past what they can do the last thing I just say about regulation similar to what I was saying about mining is there's also competition uh, across different jurisdictions and so there's you know, regulatory arbitrage where you have places like Luxembourg or Malta or the Isle of Man or Kazakhstan or whatever that um, they're ready to take some risks. They're ready to open things up because they want to grow their economies and they don't have as much to lose as uh, a tier one economy like the United States. And that's kind of the history of time is you have like incumbent businesses, incumbent leaders, even incumbent rulers of, you know, tribes. And then the upstarts and the innovators are willing to take risks, figure new things out. And they at some point usurp or at least threaten and force the incumbents to change their behavior. And, and the same thing happens with regulation. And so, uh, you know, the U.S. will have to adopt and, and overcome things or be, be left behind. And uh, increasingly, as Bitcoin and crypto world becomes the financial rails of the whole world economy, uh, it just can become increasingly significant for them to figure it out. Sure. A um, couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on NFTs and if, uh, you know, at 2Prime, eventually you guys might look into that part of it, if it makes sense for you, for your fund. But uh, what are your thoughts on the rise of NFTs? Yeah, so I have, I guess, a couple thoughts on it. One is I would just say like my, my bias is like I've never been really like a collector of baseball cards or action figures or Pokemon or anything like that. And so I think for whatever reason, my personality isn't that predisposed to like collecting stuff in that way. And so, it, you know, an NFT digital version of a collectible, even, even less so. That being said, I think also when we talk about NFTs, there's, uh, people are talking about different things sometimes. Some people are just talking about pictures, right? Like pictures or visual graphics that they're using are tracked as digital unique identifier. But there are other, you know, really, you know, like Walmart, for example, has, tracked individual pieces of lettuce through a supply chain so that if there's a salmonella outbreak or E. coli, they can say, oh, it came from this farm. They don't have to recall all the lettuce in the whole world. They can be a little bit more efficient. You know, to me, that falls under the NFT technology bucket, but I don't think those people are talking about that. And so I think the ability to use a uh, immutable ledger to track items, unique items through a supply chain or through some kind of, um, you know, financial ecosystem, whatever, 
I think is tremendously valuable. I think the, you know, the easiest places to introduce NFTs are in culture because it's, you know, it's not regulated to sell a piece of art. It is heavily regulated to track, you know, food products through, through a supply chain. And so, you know, the barriers to entry to selling your art and making a, you know, some money are, are much lower. And so that's where we see things happening first, or that's where we see the kind of outside success. And then anytime you, there's a place to make money and make it quickly and there's some mania, you're going to see legitimate actors and you're going to see corrupt ones and you're going to just see every kind of people entered into that space and, and try to, you know, play their role in it. And I think just like we saw with, you know, the ICO, I, I, I yeah. friend of somebody I really respect said, you know, NFTs are just ICOs with pictures. Uh, <laughs> that's a simplification, but, you know, in the ICO trend, you know, generally that's kind of a nasty word now, an ICO, but there was a lot of great companies that still are around today that came from that and most of them withered and died away. And that's just the nature of a business innovation. I think though, you know, where you run into issue is when you have individuals with very little kind of familiarity or in states of financial desperation that are trying to get in on this and losing, you know, money and, and being taken advantage of. And I don't know, I don't know that like, you can't protect everybody from everything. Like, what's the opposite? You just don't have NFTs or innovation and then we never you know, move forward. And so I don't know what the right way to, to treat or regulate that is, but it's going to be imperfect, whatever it is. Uh, and so uh, other than that, I'd say I am an investor in a creator economy fund uh, that invests in NFT tokens like uh, Rarible and companies like that. Um, but the reason I'm an investor in that is because I don't, I don't really know shit about it directly. <laughs> <laughs> got it um uh i this is kind of a loaded question and and you could do your best to answer it but um given that you know obviously you're you're investing in the crypto market where, where do you see cryptocurrencies um within uh three years you know do, do we have mass adoption people are using it to you know or spending it and and you can more businesses are accepting it, things along those lines? Yeah, so I guess it's a question of like, what is the goal of uh, digital assets? I prefer that term over cryptocurrencies, like, because I think cryptocurrencies is uh, not the right name, right? Like, I don't think the goal has to be that it replaces the dollar. The dollar is one like very specific financial instrument that doesn't really change in price. And so I can trade goods and services for it because it's not going to have volatility. Um, that's volatility isn't good or bad. It's just a feature of something. And so uh, we already have, uh, you know, obviously stable coins and things that can replicate the dollar. And we know that the CBDCs of the world are starting to issue their own digital versions of money. I think there's a lot of risks and scary things around their ability to track and control money even more tightly than they already do as a result of those technologies. Um, but I think more broadly, um, you know, technologies that can displace, I mean, to me, the most exciting thing is, is the DeFi world where you're taking financial manual processes and making them automated and transparent. Uh, so I can get a loan or I can trade derivatives in ways that um, I couldn't, or be very burdensome and expensive and laden with rent seeking fees had I done that through a traditional financial intermediary and it's pretty, restricted to just the wealthy that have access to those things to begin with. And so um, I think those things are going to continue to proliferate and grow. Uh, I think the foundation of all this is Bitcoin and Ether. And I think that they have 
a strong future ahead as well. Um, and along that path, I think there'll be a lot of mistakes and issues. Um, you know, I, I think what, I don't know. And it's also, you know, we also see for the first time governments starting to bring Bitcoin into the fray as, you know, legitimate recognized uh, in the case of El Salvador, basically a currency, even though, you know, I don't think people really treat it that way. Um, sure. That's interesting. And so I think that, you know, it's not like, I guess, I don't know what the stage would be when like somebody says, okay, you know, the US, US government is using Bitcoin instead of dollars now. I guess that would be like the ultimate like mind blowing like uh, victory. I don't imagine that happening ever. Um, but I think that um, a lot is changing and it's putting definitely putting pressure on banks, pressure on intermediaries. Like I'm, why would I stick money in a bank for like 0.02% annualized interest when I can earn 18, 20% doing DeFi staking with uh, right. somewhat near the same level of um, feeling of, of protection in terms of the money's not gonna disappear at least in some venues. And so uh, I think that will only continue to both usurp the power of banks and centralized financial institutions and also put pressure on them to innovate and provide some of these solutions themselves. Got it. Um, so I wanna wrap it up here with some quick rapid fire questions such as what's your favorite food? Oh, I just had it last night, uh, sushi for sure. Awesome. Uh, favorite musician or band? I'd say probably Glass Animals, uh, if you know who they are. Yeah. Uh, favorite movie? Uh, Children of Men. Have you ever seen that? No, I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, you got to see it. I'll, I'll definitely have to check that out. Uh, favorite book? Uh, probably this book, let's say, well, in terms of, I mostly read nonfiction now, but there's a great fiction book called Never Let Me Go, which is like, it's about the lives of these like people who are clones of humans and their whole reason to live is to be organ replacements for like the regular human, but it like falls the life of these clones as they like fall in love and then they like die and have their organs taken out. And it's like incredibly painful and sad. Story. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I don't, yeah, I've read a lot of different nonfiction books that, that I have found beneficial as well. Cool. And when you're not uh, working at two prime, what are you doing for fun as a hobby? Uh, I do a little like trail running, actually running a trail running half marathon this Sunday. And um, I just hiked uh, like a, in Colorado, they have these things called 14ers, but like 14,000 foot peaks or above. So wow. just do some, some hiking and outdoors stuff and hang out with my girlfriend and dog. Awesome. Well, Alex, uh, pleasure chatting with you, man. And uh, we'll love to have you back on as things progress at two prime and, uh, you know, maybe you open up to other assets, things like that, but thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Pleasure to speak with you. Thanks. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL you get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing MailChimp, built for growing businesses.
With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Next, West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy with Chef Justice Putnam. Netrootsradio.com. Je voudrais du soleil vert, des dentelles et des théères, des photos de bord de mer, dans mon jardin d'hiver. Je voudrais de la lumière, comme en Nouvelle-Angleterre. Je veux changer d'atmosphère, dans mon jardin d'hiver. Welcome back. Earlier this hour, we talked about some of the issues surrounding the pandemic and the immense challenges facing Americans. And that topic plays into this next segment as well. The National Urban League is out with its 2021 State of Black America report. The data shows higher rates of unemployment, lower household incomes, and the crushing burden of housing costs left black Americans uniquely vulnerable to COVID-19's economic fallout. Joining us now, President and CEO of the National Urban League, Mark Morial, also with us, host of MSNBC's Politics Nation and president of the National Action Network, Reverend Al Sharpton, and professor of the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, MSNBC contributor, Victoria DeFrancesco Soto. Mark, uh, I want to start with uh, the lead sort of lead lines out of the, uh, this report, um, especially pertaining to COVID. Uh, the housing crisis really, really screams out to me, but let's start with actual COVID numbers and then how black Americans, Americans are faring in this report. Uh, thank you. Good morning, Mika, and good to be with you. Uh, we focus in this report not only on what the status of stick with black America is, but on what we need to build 
a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive America. So this report mm-hmm. talks about the direction we need to take. But let's contextualize it this way. If you combine the Great Recession and COVID resulting economic difficulties, Black America has taken a tremendous hit in the first 20 years of the 21st century when it comes to wealth, income, and especially now coming out of COVID, the disparities that were exposed when it comes to the health of Black Americans. So we come out of this 2020 with tremendous challenges. We know the challenges of voting, the challenges of policing, but the economic challenges are just a start. The challenges with respect mm-hmm. to health are just as stark. In this report, we try to focus on what we can do, what policies, what actions, what solutions are available. Mr. Mayor, it's Willie Geist. Great to have you on this morning. Really, you were morning. the two-term mayor of the great city of New Orleans. I'm curious for your view and how it fits into this report of this tension we're seeing right now on the real need and the desire for police reform, but also rising crime in our major cities just over the last year. How do you see that playing out and what are some of the solutions you're looking at? You know, Willie, there has to be balance between police reform and justice on one hand and public safety. It would be a tragic mistake if facing the gun violence fight we've seen that we went back to what took place in the 1980s and 90s. Over-policing, mass incarceration, stop and frisk. No, we need to deal with the underlying causes of gun violence, easy access to guns. We need to take this opportunity now that cities have money from the American Rescue Plan and put young people to work in communities. Let's raise up the largest youth jobs and young adult job initiative in American history. Uh, that is something we can do. But you have to have trust between police and communities if you're going to prevent gun violence. And you've got to get off the seat and change the law so that easy access to guns is not the reality across America. So we've got to balance all of these things, Willie. The old solutions will not work. So this is a time for us to speak up and not allow the polarization uh, that occurred in 1980 to 1990s uh, to dominate the discussion. It is important to do both. And you hear the new uh, the Democratic nominee for mayor of New York, Eric Adams, speaking about something I learned when I was mayor. You have to balance. We put investments in summer jobs, in summer camps, but then we also reform policing to a community policing model. It's got to be balanced. You've got to do both. And you've got to recognize that without doing both, you're going to repeat the mistakes of the past. Rev. Mark brings up the name Eric Adams. You and I were just talking about him, the Democratic nominee and likely next mayor of New York City. Um, Fascinating that in this era of marches and activism about police violence and the need for change and police reform, that New York City just elected a former New York City police officer, perhaps to be its next mayor. But uh, Eric comes with a balanced resume. Uh, He's a former New York City policeman, but he's also one of the founding members of the National Action Network 30 years ago when I started it. So he has been involved on both activism and police reform, the balance that we're talking about. Because I think people forget 
that the victims of crime in the black community are blacks. So we want to see crime down as much as we want police crime. I think what many Americans do not realize is that it is the height of being frightened when you are in an area that has high crime and you're afraid to call the police because you don't know how they're going to behave when they get there, which is mm -hmm. why you need this balance. But, but Mark, let me uh, uh, address this to you, uh, to mm -hmm. question, because you and I have worked together uh, the last decade and a half uh, that you've headed the Urban League. And, and one of the things that we've looked at is the inequality, whether it be health care, whether it be education, things that uh, you come out with your annual report today. And uh, as we met with President Biden uh, last week uh, uh, around voting, I think that part of the challenge that I want you to address is how to get government to understand since there is this inequality, there must be a disproportionate investment in repairing the damage. You can't give us equal resources and equal attention when we're in an unequal situation. Greg, you just define what equity is. And equity means to do what is necessary to bring us to equal. And government played a role in these disparities where hospitals were located, not in black communities. Redlining when it came to housing, discrimination in bank loans, uh, lack of access to colleges and universities. Government policies were a contributing factor to the inequity or the inequality we face. So government has a role and a responsibility to do more, to do the extra, to undo uh, these structural, if you will, uh, inequities that we see. And I think you define it well that they've got to do more. Now, President Biden's budget plan and his infrastructure plan, I believe, hold promise as an investment of, what, of the beginning of a reverse of what we've seen all too often, for the most part, with the exception of the American Recovery Plan over the last 20 years, which is a systematic continuation of the policies of disinvestment in African-American communities and Latino communities in urban communities, big and small. And that's why we've got this wide wealth gap. We've got this wide mm -hmm. Americans who once considered themselves even middle class, having a hard time paying their mortgage, uh, paying their rent, and basically keeping their head above water. So this is an emergency situation for the nation. So I'm looking at that graph that was just up about lack lack of access, uh, computer access. Mm -hmm. Victoria DeFrancisco Soto from the great University of Texas as a professor. I know this is profoundly of interest to you. Uh, and I know you have a question for Mark about just access overall to education as it pertains to black communities. I do. Thanks, Mika. And Mark, I, I really appreciated how you highlighted the fact that what we are seeing in our communities of color is layered on top of the Great Recession, which set our communities mm -hmm. back so far and it took us so long to recover. And then looking at the latest jobs numbers, right? We saw that the U.S. as a whole is at 5.96%. But when you look at black folks, we're looking at over 9% unemployment. So can you talk to me about what the plan is to regain employment, not just in the short term, trying to get back some of those jobs, which we know are low quality jobs, but how do we set our communities of color 
on track for medium to long-term gain. So we're not just surviving, but we're thriving. What are the tools that we need and that we need to press our government officials to move forward? So thank you for the question. There's a part of this where I embrace what is fairly conventional thinking. That is that we need to invest more in education and training targeted, targeted at communities of color uh, for better paying jobs, jobs in technology, jobs in construction, uh, jobs in careers that have increasing, if you will, uh, levels of uh, levels of income and levels of wages. But in addition to that, uh, corporate America and employers have to look themselves in the mirror and say, we have engaged in systemic discrimination for the most part. You look at the mid-level and higher-up jobs in many, many industries. They're not diverse at all. So we've got work to do. So I want to see a real commitment from those who hire to do a more aggressive and assertive job in recruiting and hiring uh, African-Americans and other people of color. Uh, So that's number two. I think number three is the president's leadership and the leadership of the government uh, in highlighting racial injustice and in holding up racial justice as one of President Biden's operating pillars. I think the moral power, but also the enforcement powers of the EEOC and the Department of Justice uh, have to be in play to purge this nation of this long-standing racism. So there's much we can do. Uh, and and the idea is, do we have the will to do it? It is Thursday, the 15th of July of 2021. And you are in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. I am your chef de cuisine, Justice Putnam. Gunner the English Bulldog is our snoozing sous chef. And our daily special is Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays, a little bit of jambalaya. A little bit of spice in your life. Well, we've made it to Thursday and we still have Blue Moon Spirits Fridays ahead of us, so a lot could happen between now and then, and it always does. Though, now it is, and I'm just a small reminder, I know we're seven months in <laughs> to this different year, but... um. Uh, it does feel different than it was last year, uh, not just because uh, Donald Trump is no longer president of the United States, but also because, uh, well, <laughs> actually, I was going to say it's different from the pandemic was last year. And then I started looking at those totals, the infection rates by in the last week, and uh, it doesn't look good. But one good thing is that quite a few of us are vaccinated and if we could just overcome the terrible brainwashing and propaganda and to be anti-vax you know this vaccine hesitancy that's that's pretty much a a polite way of saying that you know people have been brainwashed okay uh we as we reported yesterday about tennessee uh stopping all outreach programs uh information programs about every vaccine for every disease until we can find out what the hell is going on yeah i guess they're going to start tray panning the kids there in tennessee right bleed them to get rid of the humors we're going to have a scopes trial 
we are going to have a Scopes trial. And it's going to go to the Supreme Court. And guess who's there? Uh-huh. Barrett. Oh, boy. Are we in trouble? I guess we won't be going to the courts to find any resolve. <laughs> Though I will uh, note that uh, Joe Biden is getting some of the lower court vacancies filled. Though we do have a story about some Republican recalcitrance on that front. Because, well, <laughs> once they find out what we're doing, they know exactly what's going on because they're criminals. And they have a criminal mind. And they think everybody's criminal like them. And uh, so that's how, we, uh, that, that's how we fake them out. Okay? We're going to use the rule of law, but also representative democracy to take them down. All right, do our thing. <laughs> Just like an Independence Day. Oh, boy. How do these aliens uh, get to the point where they walk among us? Yeah, well, they're leading our... Uh, they're leading us off a cliff. So let's not let them do that. Um, My dear mom has a medical procedure today for, well, gastrointestinal stuff. And she's going to be put out. And then they're going to wake her up, and then we'll go home. But uh, we had to go through a very extensive process that we are still going through now because she goes into this procedure about, oh, well, shortly after the end of this show. <laughs> we rush out of here and get to the facility. And then, uh, so that's taking taken up a bit of attention through the morning. And uh, if I seem discombobulated or more discombobulated than usual during this beginning rant, that's my excuse. Okay. Well, I did notice that there's a few things hopping around on the uh, the hopper out there in the news hopper. And one, I just love this one, leaked Kremlin documents suggest Putin holds blackmail leverage over Trump and that's why Russia backed him. Oh, give me a break. That's news? Everybody knew that when this guy suddenly got elected. How'd that happen? Three counties. <laughs> over, or was it, yeah, two counties over three states. How do, how, how'd this work out? There was some, some number there, but across Pennsylvania and uh, another state. And that was enough electoral votes for Trump to win. He didn't win the popular vote. He was roundly trounced like this last time. Except this time we took all the electoral votes and he's totally pissed. Like, wait a second. We, we, we had gamed this system <laughs> and people started voting by mail. We weren't accounting for that because you can't hack a paper ballot. Just can't. So, uh, that's interesting, treating it like news. Well, wasn't that supposed to be in the Mueller report, but they weren't able to go there because of, well, you know, obstruction by Donald Trump? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened. Oh, so everybody knew at the time the only way that Trump won was with some sort of help from Russia. They only announced that they were doing it, and we only knew that they were. I will add also that if for some reason Hillary had won all the stuff that we are going through now, we would be going through then, except 
I don't know. They might have had a successful storming of the Capitol. Okay. That might be the only difference. Oh, so we have uh, General Miley coming off like Antifa. And I'm not joking. Okay, because, you know, as much as I love Antifa, because they're an amorphous organization with really no titular head, <laughs> things aren't as well organized as like with the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, Constitutional Sheriffs, and every other Nazi in America. Those efforts have it all planned out. Okay, they are, well, Nazis are pretty much social engineers. <laughs> I mean, they only proved it in Nazi Germany. Boy, they had an engineering mindset with what they were doing then, and it uh, pretty much worked for them until we kicked their ass. Anyway, General Miley might be Antifa, for real, because it took four hours for any kind of response. I mean, couldn't Miley have sent... I know, Posse Comitatus, I know, I know. But there were some troops mustered just across the Potomac. All they had to do was get there. All they had to do, they were all ready. They were ready to go. Everybody was in the trucks. Give us a word. So Miley could have put some pressure to bear on the appropriate officials that were holding things up. Like maybe Michael Flynn's brother. We still don't hear about that. And every now and then, I come across a post by the Vindmans. Or uh, Rachel Vindman, the wife. And I think about those brothers. You know, the one brother had nothing, truly nothing to do with what Alexander did, except their brothers, twins. But he, he got kicked out also. For being a patriot in a Nazi regime, a, a patriot to America in the attempted Nazi takeover of America. And somehow Michael Flynn's brother's still there and he's like, I don't know, a zealot. He's always there. Nothing happens. Okay. So I'm glad that. Michael, or I'm I'm glad that General Miley is uh, coming out and uh, expressing the alarm that they felt at the time. But he did, for some reason, walk down <laughs> out in, into Lafayette Square when Trump had uh, the military, the military, kick out and violently manhandle peaceful protesters, church people. <laughs> Kicked him right out. In fact, people from the church that he commandeered <laughs> manhandled them and kicked him out of the way so he could hold the Bible upside down. Like he's some sort of God on earth. He's not the manifestation or a representation of God on earth. He's actually God on earth. <laughs> representation of God. What no representation we are. And that's the kind of uh, person that uh, 70 some odd million people voted for. And now they're all willing to die for him like a Jonestown. 
There's a story of a guy who did not want to take the vaccine because it might have made Trump look bad. Okay, and here I am arguing that these people don't care about anything but themselves. They can't, they can't like understand what it is to do something for a stranger. On the other hand, they think they know Donald Trump, and Donald Trump knows them on a personal basis in their hearts. I have a personal communion with Donald Trump every time I pray. Wow. So that's how religions start. Yes, that's exactly how religions start. As Jim Morrison said, you can either plan a start a religion or plan a murder. It's all the same thing. Jesus. Okay, I got all that in, didn't I? Yes, I did. Well, what's on the rest of the menu here? Because we, of course, have a curated part of the show. What's on the rest of the menu at the top? The National Urban League released its State of Black America 2021 report, but you just know the GOP will deride it as critical race theory. Because it is on the rest of the menu. No, it's not. But it addresses a lot of the things that uh, show that there's a really uh, bad systemic uh, issue of race in America. Shocking, isn't it? Yes, it is. On the rest of the menu, Senate Republicans go after the Biden judicial nominee to the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Why? Because she opposes voter suppression. She cannot be objective on this Nazi takeover of America. You know what? This is what happens when you don't punch a Nazi. Okay? Just, just saying. Oh, which reminds me. Even Lynn Cheney punched a Nazi. Jim Jordan came up and said, here, we got to get the little ladies out of the way of the aisle. Give me your hand. I'll guide you. And she slapped him up one side or the other and uh, pretty much tapped him out. Good for Lynn Cheney. But I still wouldn't trust her. A GOP report says that responding to racism and sexual assault in the Navy weakens combat readiness. Because you need those guys all pumped up and ready to rape. And right-wing intellectual heavyweight Senator Tommy Tuberville wonders why trans athletes can't just have a separate but equal team of their own. Tuberville. After the break, we move to the chef's table where the United Kingdom will ban online races from soccer matches after the lawlessness connected connected to Britain's loss in the Euro 2020 championship. Did you see that? Hooligans. And the Bosnia intelligence chief has been detained in a money laundering scheme. All that and more on West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Bon Appetit.
Again, netrootsradio.com to the right of the page is the chat room link. And the chat room is monitored by Kelly Lincoln. Of course, thank you, Kelly. If you would then look across the page to the left of that chat room link near the bottom of our homepage at netrootsradio.com, right there. Right there is the link to our Patreon page. If you could become a recurring Patreon of Netroots Radio, you know it helps us tremendously in fulfilling our civic duty as the founders originally intended. If you could afford an espresso-type coffee drink, and if you could afford to send those funds to us once a month, that helps us pay our bills, fly under the radar, and fulfill our civic duty by making sure this Nazi takeover of America is successful because they keep trying. Okay, every 70 years or so, we got to stop it. Stop it. And thank you for allowing us once again to fulfill our civic duty. If you would like to follow Netroots Radio on Twitter, you can do so at Netroots Radio. Tom takes care of that. Thank you, Tom. I take care of me because there's no one left. <laughs> no, what? And who am I on Twitter? I am at Justice Putnam. Yes, really me. Indeed. I post the show notes and links diary on Daily Co's about 10 minutes before showtime. Get that posted up on Twitter for your show notes and links. Well, salon pleasure here at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy because that's what we are. Follow the show on Twitter at Cookbook West and pick up podcasts by way of Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeart, YouTube, iTunes, and wherever podcasts can be found because they're everywhere. Deezer. Deezer's a podcast platform. Check it out. They're all there. Okay, let's tuck in to this first offering here in the Bistro Cafe part of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy because we do have the chef's table. Little tidbits, a morsel, and a mousse-bouche to send you on your way in this lovely Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays. This first offering comes out of the American Independent by Emily Singer. Senate Republicans yesterday, Wednesday, came out against President Joe Biden's nominee for a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, criticizing her support for voting rights and advocacy against the type of voter suppression tactics Republican lawmakers across the country have sought to implement. I keep saying you don't negotiate with terrorists, and you certainly don't allow them in the halls of Congress. That's just me. They got rid of commies. I hold in my hand a blank sheet of all the commies in the State Department. They kicked them all out. Real people, even though there was nothing on the sheet of paper. We could actually have sheets of paper reams. Boxes upon boxes of reams and reams of paper of all the Nazis in government. We have the proof. Do we have the will? Well, I hope so. Someday. <laughs> Perez is currently... Oh, I'm sorry. The senator said during a judiciary hearing on the nomination of Myrna Perez that she would not be able to rule impartially on voting rights issues if she were seated on the court. Because that's how it is in America. We are all on the side of representative democracy and those who aren't are called Nazis. 
Nazis don't like representative democracy. They hate America. Perez is currently on leave from her role as the director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Voting Rights and Elections Project. Oh, my God. Where she analyzed and criticized voter suppression laws that have been passed by GOP-controlled state legislatures in the wake of Trump's loss of the 2020 presidential election. So, I suppose the insurgency continues. Yes, it does. Cruz took issue with Perez's advocacy against voter suppression laws. You have waged litigation campaigns and opposed voter ID laws. You have opposed voter integrity laws. You have opposed prohibitions on ballot harvesting. You have advocated for felons being able to vote, Cruz said, calling her a radical activist. Really? Senator Marsha Blackburn, oh my God, said she didn't believe Perez could be neutral, saying... Mona Perez is too busy being an activist to concentrate on being a Second Circuit judge. Blackburn tweeted, sharing a video of her questioning of Perez. Perez responded, In the great genius of our Constitution, people play different roles, according to the Hill newspaper. Advocates zealously argue on behalf of their clients in as many forms as they can. I had the privilege and pleasure of doing that. Democrats and voting rights group responded to the Judiciary Committee Republicans as well. Senator Ted Cruz claims that Myrna Perez is a radical activist because of her advocacy for the right to vote. Guaranteeing access to the polls is anything but radical. But we need judges with civil rights experience like Perez on our courts. The Alliance for Justice tweeted urging Perez's confirmation. I have no affiliation with the Alliance of Justice, but I'm all for it. The NAACP's Legal Defense Fund also tweeted support for Perez, writing, Federal judges play vital roles in preserving constitutional democracy. It is critical that judges have a demonstrated commitment to fairness and the rule of law. Myrna Perez has dedicated her career to strengthening and protecting voting rights and our democracy. And the Nazi Republicans say that that is a bad thing. That was in this reporter's opinion, of course, but it's really a fact. Senate Democrats are taking advantage of their slim majority in the chamber to prioritize the confirmation of Biden's judicial nominee since Mitch McConnell packed the courts with all those Federalist Society judges up and down. Even dog catcher judge is a Federalist Society judge now. The pace at which they are confirming his court picks is faster than any president in the last 50 years, thank God. To date, seven of Biden's judicial nominees have been confirmed more than the two judges Trump had confirmed at this same point in his term. Republicans have yet to block one of Biden's judicial nominees who have been far more diverse than Trump's picks because they're all white guys. Frat boys, give them a case of beer. They'll rule however you want. If Perez is confirmed, she'll be the only Latina to serve on the second court of appeals. And the first since then Circuit Judge Sonia Sotomayor was confirmed to a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court in 2009.
Israel of the American Independent brings us this next offering here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Republican lawmakers are pointing to a report released on Monday to suggest that the U.S. Navy under President Joe Biden is too focused on combating racism and sexual assault to be effective. The 22-page document called A Report on the Fighting Culture of the United States Navy Surface Fleet was released by Senator Tom Cotton, Republican Nazi of Arkansas, and GOP reps Mike Gallagher and Jim Banks and Dan Crenshaw, the one-eyed goon from Texas. The first page of the report says that it was written by two retired military officers and conducted at the direction of the four lawmakers. Was one of those retired military officers one-eyed Dan The report's executive summary calls it a strictly nonpartisan exercise in congressional oversight. Most of the fewer than 100 interviews conducted for the study took place under the Trump administration. Yeah, where they had Fox News on all the time. Any brainwashing going on in the troops? You wonder. In a press release announcing the report, the lawmakers presented their work as proof that the U.S. Navy is not adequately training its sailors to win battles. A strong Navy is critical to our national security interests around the world, Crenshaw said. The findings clearly indicate that our sailors are not receiving the training they need to perform the essential functions of the Navy, to find and sink enemy fleets, and ensure freedom of navigation. Wow. Freedom of mobility? Thank you, buddy. That would be nice. Oh, let me just say, when I make some sort of mocking reference to Dan Crenshaw wearing an eye patch, it's only because he plays it up all the time. It's his, it's a shtick for him. <clears throat> it's sad that he has to have one, but hey, you F around, you'll find out. The report says that the reason for the distraction, in part, is a corrosive over-response to media culture and non-essential training to address diversity and sexual assault prevention. Yeah, coming from an officer corps that has been going to court for how many decades for what? Sexual assault. us this final offering here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays. A U.S. Senator 
who has repeatedly challenged transgender equality, recently proposed the idea that transgender students compete on a team of their own rather than with those of the same gender. During a hearing on Tuesday for Catherine Lamont, President Joe Biden's nominee to lead the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education, Tommy Tuberville asked whether transgender athletes couldn't have their own separate team instead of playing on the team of their gender. Lehman previously worked in the same position for what she is now being considered while under the Obama administration. During her time in that role, the administration released a Dear Colleague letter that provided schools with guidance on issues of transgender equality. The letter stated that when a school provides sex-segregated activities and facilities, transgender students must be allowed to participate in such activities and access such facilities consistent with their gender identity. The Trump administration dished those protections in 2017, but the Biden administration has since rolled out numerous executive orders, memorandums, and proposed rules to fight anti-trans discrimination, including discrimination against transgender youth in education. Tuberville claimed that the Obama administration had changed a couple processes during Lehman's time there, suggesting that, as a result, he was getting complaints from constituents about this transgender problem. Now we're letting transgender athletes involved dressing in the same dressing rooms, using the same restrooms. That's got to be an answer to this, he said. Given your record, Miss Lehman, do you believe that allowing transgender women to compete in women's sports should come at the cost of discrimination against biological women? Lehman responded, The promise of Title IX is that no one person shall be subject to discrimination on the basis of sex. So I would not countenance discriminating against any student in the context of Title IX if I were enforcing Title IX. It protects everyone. Of course, Tuberville doesn't like that. And I would argue Tuberville doesn't even know what the hell she's talking about. All right, let's get to our break, and when we get back from that break, we will go through weather from around the world, and we will finish up with the stories that we've curated for you today. You are listening to West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, and we will be right back. You are listening to NetworksRadio.com. Please hang up and try again. From a point at sea to the circles of your mind, a new force is at work for planetary transformation. New radio for a new Earth. This is Take Two Move Review. I'm Clinton Johnston. This week, suddenly Soderbergh. So what sticks in my head to say about No Sudden Move, Steven Soderbergh's latest film, is that, refreshingly, it feels like a movie. And that's probably for two reasons. One, No Sudden Move squarely comes from a classic Hollywood tradition, film noir. Kirk Goins is a mid-level crook in 1954 Detroit. He's fresh out of jail when a mystery boss hires him into a three-man crew. Their job is to hold hostage the family of an auto exec who's planning some industrial espionage. The new plan is this guy must now do his espionage for the benefit of whomever it is Goins and crew are working for. 
Plans go awry, hidden motives are revealed, people are betrayed, and Goins, followed by fellow crook Ronald Russo, must work out how to stay alive and how to score the elusive big payday. Antiheroes, a corrupt world, twists and turns, a MacGuffin, a money hunt, film noir. Two, Soderbergh, like many other directors I admire, makes consistent stylistic choices in his films. Let's talk about two of them. Character focus and complex plots. By design, Soderbergh and screenwriter Ed Solomon do not give you everything you need to know up front. You pick up facts as the film progresses. In fact, in a very real way, you don't learn what's driving No Sudden Move until the postscript. The postscript. That tight control of information puts us close to the characters and what actors we have playing these characters. Benicio Del Toro, David Harbour, John Hamm, plus another half dozen names, and anchoring the film, Don Cheadle. Cast to play to their strengths as opposed to just playing their types, these stars get to stretch their acting chops a bit. Now all the main women characters are either girlfriends or wives, but that's another two minutes. Yeah, so my whole it feels like a movie thing probably says more about my biases than anything else, but also it's because No Sudden Move is just visually rich and conceptually interesting with good writing and strong performances. Isn't that what you want a movie to be? This has been Take Two Movie Review. I'm Clinton Johnston. Catch up with us at TakeTwoMovieReview.com and feed us back on our channel on YouTube. This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Colorectal cancer is the number two cancer killer of men and women in the United States, but it is preventable. Early on, colorectal cancer typically has no symptoms. It starts with a precancerous polyp or abnormal growth in the colon, which can be removed without surgery. Several tests are available to find these polyps, so they can be removed before they turn into cancer. Screening also finds colorectal cancer early when treatment works best. Recommended screening for adults at average risk begins at age 50 and continues until age 75. Learn about screening test options and find out which tests are covered by insurance. Talk to your healthcare provider about when you should be screened and discuss the best tests for you. For more information about colorectal cancer prevention, please visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. Hi, it's Tom. Could we humbly suggest your donation to netrootsradio.com? All we've got to run this 24-hour powerhouse of progressive resistance radio is what comes out of our own wallets. And you, you are our biggest donor. And it doesn't take much, $3, $5. Just go to the bottom of our netrootsradio.com page and hit our secure donate button. Heck, you can even make a recurring contribution. So donate what you'd like at the bottom of our netrootsradio.com's homepage. Because you are our biggest donor. NetRootsRadio.com. Together, we are Resistance Radio. Can a high school punish a student for criticizing the school on Snapchat? I'm Bill Newman, and this is the Civil Liberties Minute. At a high school in Pennsylvania, a ninth grader, identified in the recent Supreme Court decision as BL, didn't make the varsity cheerleading squad and, in the words of the court, did not accept that decision with good grace. 
More specifically, BL posted to her Snapchat friends group an image of herself and a friend giving a middle finger salute with the caption, F*** school, F*** softball, F*** cheer, F*** everything. The image was brought to the attention of the school authorities who punished her, suspending her from the JV cheerleading squad for a year. The student apologized, but to no avail. The punishment stood until the student sued in federal district court and won, and won at the Court of Appeals, and at the end of June, won her freedom of speech case at the Supreme Court as well. The high court ruled that the school's interest in teaching good manners did not overcome the student's interest in free expression, emphasizing that the speech caused minimal disruption to teaching, learning, and school activities, and that the school has an important interest in protecting a student's unpopular expression, especially when the expression takes place off campus. The 8-to-1 majority opinion, written by Justice Breyer, intentionally does not answer all the questions of when off-campus speech might not be protected, but made clear that in this instance, it clearly was a good and clear victory for freedom of speech. The Civil Liberties Minute is made possible by the ACLU because freedom can't protect itself. Most people believe the American economy is rigged by and for bankers, CEOs, and other super-rich elites because, well, because it is. With their hired armies of lawmakers, lobbyists, lawyers, and the like, They fix the economic rules so ever more of society's money and power flows uphill to them. Take corporate CEOs. While 2020 was somewhere between a downer and devastating for most people, the CEO class made out like bandits, with each of the three top-paid corporate honchos pocketing as much as a billion dollars in personal pay. Are they geniuses or what? What? All three of their corporations ended 2020 with big financial losses and declining value. So how can such mediocrity produce such lavish rewards? Simple. Rig the pay machine. Today's corporate system of setting compensation for top executives is a flim-flam disguised as a model of management rectitude. On its face, it sounds good. Pay for performance, it's called, meaning the CEO does well if the company does well. But who defines doing well? The scam at most major corporations is that the standard of corporate performance that the chief must meet to qualify for a huge payday is set by each corporation's board of directors. Guess who they are? Commonly, board members are the CEO's hand-picked brothers-in-law, golfing buddies, and corporate cronies. So they set the bar for winning multi-million dollar executive paychecks so low that a sack of concrete could jump over it. This is Jim Hightower saying, well, can't corporate shareholders just vote no on any executive excess? Yes, but corporate rules decree that votes by shareholders are merely advisory, meaning top executives can ignore them, grab the money, and run. The system is fixed, and we need to break it. Howdy-ho, folks. Thanks for tuning in and sharing my weekly commentaries. Also, please join me for a live web show I host every other Tuesday, the Hightower Lowdown Happy Hour at the Chat and Chew Cafe. You can join the action live online as I chat with grassroots leaders and progressive sparklies from around the country. Go to hightowerlowdown.org slash chat and chew to find out about upcoming guests and watch past episodes. That's hightowerlowdown.org slash chat and chew. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1959. That was the day half a million steelworkers walked off the job in a historic 116-day strike in defense of work rules. It was the largest industry-wide strike. It was also the last. The strike affected 12 steel companies and shut down more than 85% of steel production. Mill owners refused to grant wage increases unless the union agreed to changes in the contract. Specifically, they were looking to eliminate Section 2B, titled Local Working Conditions. The bosses wanted the ability to change the number of workers assigned to any given task. They also wanted to introduce new machinery and rules that would reduce labor hours and cut the workforce. United Steelworker members understood this as an assault on workplace safety and a move to break the union. Mill bosses hoped that a long strike would provoke the membership to abandon their union. But according to Jack Metzger, author of Striking Steel, members had grown used to walkouts every three years and planned accordingly. As well, the United Steelworkers had a well-oiled machine machinery, including an internal welfare system for hardship cases, and also reached out to merchants, banks, charitable agencies, and local and state governments to organize relief. By the end of August, the Department of Defense stoked anxieties that national security was at risk. Three months into the strike, union funds dwindled and strikers felt the pinch. President Eisenhower invoked a Taft-Hartley injunction, hoping to force strikers back to work. As the union rose to challenge Taft-Hartley's constitutionality, solidarity among the mill owners crumbled. Kaiser Steel broke ranks and settled separately. Their contract granted wage increases and preserved Section 2B, which set the precedent for the contract that was eventually signed industry-wide. Thank you for accompanying us here to the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays. We always begin weather from around the world along the banks of the Rogue River in the Rogue River Valley of Southern Oregon on the west coast of the continental United States of America where it is currently 58 degrees Fahrenheit expecting a high of only 88 which is considerably cooler in the forecast than we have gotten. We'll see if it does indeed get as cool. Sunny conditions throughout the day with winds out of the northwest at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Clear skies overnight with lows in the mid-50s, winds out of the northwest at 5 to 10. With mainly sunny skies tomorrow, highs around 87, winds out of the northwest at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Confirmed cases of coronavirus in Jackson County in the southern part of Oregon have increased once again and are at 118,056 confirmed cases. Deceased remained confirmed at 148. Grass pollen is really high outside the window here in Rogue River. Boy, can I attest to that. The air quality index is good at 39 point parts per million 
and the daytime UV index is very high at 9. Barometric pressure is holding steady at 30.01 inches. Visibility is up to 10 miles and relative humidity is at 72%. Weather from around the world is brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations and a crowd crowdsources from around the world. London is 70 degrees and cloudy. Paris is 77 and mostly cloudy. Rome is 80 degrees and partly cloudy. Kiev is 93 and fair. Kabul is 84 and fair. Hong Kong is 82 degrees and clear. Tokyo is 80 degrees and mostly cloudy. Sydney, Australia is 58 and clear. San Francisco, California is 51 and cloudy. And New York, New York is 85 degrees Fahrenheit and sunny. And that is weather from around the world, brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations that are crowd crowdsources from around the world. Danica Kirka of the Associated Press brings us this first amuse-bouche here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the government plans to ban anyone guilty of online racist abuse from soccer matches as authorities continue to respond to the lawlessness connected to England's loss in the final of the European Soccer Championship. Johnson told lawmakers that it was time to act after three black members of England's national team were targeted by racist racist abuse on social media after they failed to score during the penalty shootout that sealed the team's loss to Italy on Sunday night. The government plans to add online racism to the list of offenses for which fans can be barred from matches. Courts are allowed to issue banning orders if a fan is convicted of a relevant offense linked to a match, including crimes such as disorderly behavior or possession of weapons. La promesse de me trouver à tes genoux Aussitôt que tu m'appelles Rester toujours fidèle C'est tout C'est tout Je te donne tous mes printemps Mes étés de mer Mes automnes Quand les feuilles tombent partout Si ce n'est pas une bonne affaire, je te donne tous mes hivers. Associated Press staff bring us this final amuse-bouche here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Bosnia authorities have detained the head of the Balkan country's state security agency in a probe that includes money laundering. Police detained Osman Memedic, the head of the intelligence security agency, for questioning. 
Mamadadajik is under is under suspicion of abusive position, falsifying a personal identification documents and money laundering, the statement added. No other details were immediately available. Authorities last year charged Mamedajic with abuse of power for allegedly using agency resources to spy on a man who filed a criminal complaint against him. Legal proceedings often take years in the corruption-plagued Balkan nation, which is still struggling to recover from the devastating war in 1992-1995. That brings us to the end of our broadcast period for the day, but you do know Netroots Radio broadcasts on, and we'll meet up tomorrow for Blue Moon Spirits Fridays. So do stay tuned to Netroots Radio all day and all night for all the breaking news as it breaks. And we'll meet up here tomorrow, right here, in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Je voudrais du soleil vert, des dentelles et des théâtres, des photos de bord de mer, de manches d'hiver. Je voudrais de la lumière, comme en Nouvelle-Angleterre. Je veux changer d'atmosphère, de manches d'hiver. Du frais d'Astère, revoir un latécoère. Je voudrais toujours te plaire, ton mange d'un d'hiver. Je veux déjeuner par terre, comme au long de golfe clair. T'embrasser les yeux ouverts, ton mange d'un d'hiver.
If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. The Jay Young Show is a weekly podcast featuring insightful discussions with anyone from big business CEOs, celebrities, to military heroes. Each interview is a personal conversation about business, life, and anything in between. And now, your host, Jay Young. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for showing up for the Jay Young Show. We're going to have a great show for you today. Alex Kowalski, friend, friendly Tiger member of, of my good friend here in Wisconsin. And, and we're going to learn more about him and about what his journey was like. And, and you know, I, I can't admit to go about how easy it is, you know, to, to be successful in business. And, you know, it's not easy, man. The top, I mean, 99% of the people, you know, don't don't ever get there. I mean, it's like a it's a hard journey. And what did you have to do during that journey? That's kind of what my message is all about. That's why I want to I want to bring that to you. You know, I want to bring that to you, the consumer, talking about hey, how easy is it? How hard is it? What did you have to learn? What did you what did you learn? What what was the easy things? What were the hard things? What was the big takeaways? You know, what is it that you had to had to do? I mean, not not everybody can be a Jeff Bezos, right, and 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 start a little company, and all of a sudden grow, 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 and build, 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 and and next thing you're worth 200, 200 billion or whatever it is, or a Walmart or something like that. But Alex, thanks you, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Looking forward to spending some time with you and talking a little bit about our story up here in Wisconsin. Right now, the only thing anybody cares about is is Aaron going to play quarterback or not? So, <laughs> yeah. right, that was my second question, but uh, yeah, and, and I, I heard that he's. Um, he, he, he thought about it over the fourth, and he's like, okay, now I'm ready to concentrate on football, and I guess everybody's going to figure out if he's going to be quarterback of Packers or where, right? That's right, yeah. And, you know, his life doesn't look too bad playing golf on the weekends on television and, and stress-free. I don't know why he'd want to come up here. Maybe 30, maybe 30 million reasons to do it, but uh, we'd love to have him back in Green Bay. It'd be a great great fall if we have him. We wow. So no no inside information on that? <laughs> no. No, no, not in my new life. I'm not a, a quality assistant coach at Green Bay for sure. Yeah, I'll tell you. Well, I mean, to, to, I read an article. He was talking about you know the, the the double jeopardy or the jeopardy being the jeopardy host and and well, I only play football X number of weeks a year and jeopardy's only like sixteen year sixteen weeks a year or whatever it is. I could do it all and and uh, man, it's just a uh, it's great to be in that uh, in, in that. Uh, arena i guess and and have that type of what he whatever he can do but man i tell you what he's he's keeping a lot of pen, people on pins and needles right now isn't he that's right there's there's a lot of people depending on him up here yeah 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 i went to a game up there a couple of couple of years ago on uh on a monday night football and it was incredible yeah great great i mean the the, the atmosphere there is just really really cool and and uh it is everything that you think it is and it wasn't, but like forty degrees, so it wasn't like a real cold. But I can imagine how cold that stadium is. Yeah, and we'll get into my story in a minute. I'm not a native Wisconsin uh, guy, but ended up here twenty years ago after college. And from a non-diehard Packers fan, can tell you it is absolutely electric. 
And, you know, it's a, it's a city. People have a hard time contemplating it's a, a city of 100,000 people. We had an NFL franchise. I mean, Green Bay is 100,000 people, um, you know, owned by the town, owned by the community. It's got a, a CEO running it. So the story, uh, the unique, you feel that passion on game day, the tailgating, being in the stadium. It, again, from a non-Packers fan, absolutely bucket list thing. You got to do it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It really is. And there are all the tents, all the tents that are set up all the way to the deal and went there and had the, the what, what do you call the, uh, uh, what do you call it? What they, what they, what they eat before bratwurst or something? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, bratwurst. yeah. In every, in every imaginable flavor you can imagine. I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Jalapeno cheddar, mushroom Swiss brat. If you can dream it up, they can make it here in Wisconsin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really, really great. Okay, so anyway, so tell me something about, so after, where did you go to high school? What, where, where were you? Yeah, so I grew up in lower Michigan, a little town called St. Louis. So just south of Mount Pleasant, hour north of Lansing, which is the capital. My parents were both public school administrators. I uh, grew up, I had two brothers. It was a rough and tumble household. We all played sports. We rented everything. Uh, but because my dad was a superintendent, I had to get good grades at school. And the message from my parents growing up that I remember was, hey, go to go to college, Get good grades, get a good degree, and go get a good job, and life will take care. That was, that's how we were raised. That that's you know mm. was our household was growing up. The young age though, I had started one business. It was a uh, lawn mowing and landscaping business. My grandfather died when I was in sixth grade, so I inherited a John Deere lawnmower, right on lawnmower. And so you know, what do you do, right? You get one of these, and here it is. And I was going to cut the neighbor's grass. And my brother helped me, and then my other brother joined, and. One thing leads to another and 22 lawns and some commercial contracts. I had to get a driver's license in there somewhere. So it, it, it was a, it was a great business and learned that working for ourselves was something we enjoyed and how you grow it. Again, back to the napkin before social media, but with the work ethic was instilled in us. So it kind of always stuck with, with me. Went to college up at Michigan Tech, which is way up in the, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And, and got a degree in chemical engineering and a degree in business. I also played football there. It's some great fond memories uh, of my time being a college athlete, met great friends, some of my best friends to this day still. And, uh, and that will actually come back in the story later on, um, and, and we'll talk about that. But after that, I moved to Wisconsin. The, it was 2001. The dot-com bubble had burst, and uh, the auto industry was in shambles in lower Michigan. And so I, I said, oh, we'll go to the paper industry in Wisconsin. We're going to need paper for forever. Uh, so 2001, I came down and started my career with International Paper, a Fortune 30 company. Wow. Everything I thought I wanted, the pension, the 401k, two weeks of vacation, and I was on the corporate train. Wow. So so why did you decide chemical engineering? Yeah, I had a chemistry teacher in high school that I loved uh, and, and just loved it. And so I thought, again, 16, 17-year-old kid, hey, love chemistry, go be a chemical engineer. I was really good at math and science. And uh, of course, the, the financial side of me was I looked it up. Hey, chemical engineers, you know, 99% placement rate. They, they and electrical engineers were, were the highest salaries coming out of school. So it, it just made sense. Wow. That's neat. That's neat. I mean, I know that some of the, some of the brightest people that I know got a chemical engineering uh, a degree. I mean, I'm, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up here. I mean, whatever, you know, I'm just saying that, man, some of the smartest people have a chemical engineering. And obviously you're, you're extremely bright. You've done a great job in your business and, and growing it and selling it at the right time. But, but I'm just saying that, man, that's a great that you thought to get that degree because that gives you not only gives you common sense, uh, which I've found with people chemical engineering, that it does give you common sense, but it also gives you 
a, a great part of knowledge that that some of the people don't get from that engineering standpoint. You know, yeah, so I was I told people I was a solid B student, right? And and it was hard. I, I didn't get into the organic chemistry, but it, it taught you how to solve very complex problems. I think that's really you know, to piggyback on what you said is. Yeah. You know, there, there was a lot of multi-step, you know, amorphous information. You had to solve for it. And then along the way, I actually got a business degree as well, Jay, because I, I redshirted my first year for football. Uh, I was done with my chemical engineering degree in four. And so I got a business degree along the way as well and found, it's kind of funny how the world works. I found I enjoyed the business concepts. I love the problem solving of chemical engineering, but I enjoyed the business concepts and how to impact the organization at a higher level than just, you know, looking at a pump curve or, or drawn out a distillation towel. So that's, that's kind of where the journey started. That's great. That's great. I mean, it, it is. I definitely agree with that. Okay, great. So you graduate from college, college athlete, you graduate from college, you go to IP and then all of a sudden, how, how long, how long were you there? Well, I ended up being there two years, but six months in, I was like, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. This is not the go to school and get a good day. You know, I saw what my boss was doing to my boss's boss, and, you know, up the food chain. I thought, I, this is not what I want life. Maybe in 40 life. years, 30, 40 years, you're going to be, yeah. you, you got to where you can at least afford the best house. and yeah. Right. Stock options, maybe if you were there 30 years, and, uh, you know, maybe a gold watch on the way out. And so I think part of it, just being impatient, being driven, uh, some of the background, you know, the way I was raised. Um, uh, and so, you know, as every great story goes, I meet a girl. Right. And so six months in, I met my now wife, uh, Holly, and I was out in the town and one of the summer interns that we had at the mill at International Paper. It was his birthday. So we all went out celebrating and and I met Holly at the wee hours of the morning. And, and that's the story we're not going to tell during this interview. But uh, she and I became started dating and I was just drawn to one her beauty. But she had left Kimberly Clark. Same same story. College athlete, got a degree, went to Kimberly Clark again, Fortune 100 company left and she had started her own business and she was about a year into that journey and I and I just couldn't believe it. How do you leave this great job? I was not loving what I was doing, but I didn't know how to go start your own thing. And so she and I meet and uh, it become a moment that, you know, just a random birthday party out in the town and, and sort of changed the trajectory of both of our lives. Um, she ultimately sold her first business in 2004. It was a graphic design business. We met in, in late 01. We get married and uh, I went and did a couple of other things along the way, Jay. A headhunter called me after two years at IP, and I went and worked at a, another large company, did some sales. But it really took another turn when I went and worked for a startup in two, about 2006 uh, up north in the northern part of Wisconsin. It was a real estate investment firm. And that was kind of my first opportunity. I was a director of sales to get the business side of it. How do you finance commercial property? How do you grow a small business? And Holly had had her exit behind her. She had started up her second business. And we were on our way. So, yeah, that those are sort of the early, early, early beginnings of um, how I made the shift from the corporate world to entrepreneurship. Right. So, so you get into welding, right? So, performance welding. Right. How, how do you, I mean, how does a how does a chemical engineer get in get into welding and and build a business of? We're we're on pins and needles trying to figure out how did you build this business up and sell it. So that's right. kind of a yeah, idea behind so it, it, it's a great lead in so holly and i you know we started investing doing some commercial real estate deals you started a second business and we're just kind of i'll say just ham and egg in it another uh, you know game day term right just kind of ham and egg in it 
uh, and a banker called me because I like to network and build a bank. A banker said, hey, I just met with an owner of this welding business, and it's a distressed company. It needs capital. It needs leadership. Was like, oh, I know you're always looking for things. You should go meet them. And so that's exactly how it started. Uh, I sat down with the owner and his wife, hammered out a deal. I'll never forget. I called my parents, and, and, and my dad goes, a welding company? What the hell are you buying a welding company? You don't know how to weld. <laughs> and, the, and the key, well, there were real people. Said, Why'd you buy it? There were three things. And I think this is great. You know, I learned this and in, in, in the hard way, but we can buy it right. It was 2012, Jay. So we're post recession, 08, 09, the, you know, the horrible recession. And the banks were still cleaning up some of their hardest hit credits, bad balance sheet, right? They just, they needed it gone. The regulators wanted it off their books. It was their largest non performing credit. So, you know, you had a willing seller, eager seller, if you will, and a willing buyer. So I could buy it really right. All right. Number two, I had a guy to run it. My best friend was a former teammate of mine in college. He was a linebacker. I was a quarterback. So we had the offense and the defense came back together. And he had spent 10 years running plants in this space, contract manufacturing, cutting, bending, welding, painting, assembling. So he knew how to run the plant. Remember, this business was far smaller than the plants that he was running. Called him up. Uh, you know, we essentially hammered the, the deal out over the phone, put together an email. That was our big employment agreement where he was going to help grow this and, and, you know, be incentivized along the way as well as on the back end. And third, and, I, you know, probably the right order, you buy it right, right guy to run it. Um, amazing customer list, Miller Electric, ABB, Mashlock, get these great global customers uh, for a little $8 million business in, in Little Shoot, Wisconsin. And I, and I just thought, wow, if I can buy this right, I got the guy to run it. We got to be able to talk to these folks and and help, you know, make their lives easier and grow it. It was that simple. That was really how it started. Wow. So you, you just were looking for a business at that time, 2012. I mean, I know we went to 2004, yep. six, and then we jumped to 2012. Pardon about that. My, my, yeah. my on that, but, but you found the business and, and uh, about how much did you pay for it? Yeah. So we, we bought the company for $3.2 million. Okay. okay. And what that included was they had 90,000 square feet of manufacturing. They had two buildings, 60,000 in one town and 30,000 about eight miles down the road. Okay. So okay. because we had done enough real estate along the way, that was kind of my downside protection. I thought the real estate, just the two buildings are probably worth between two and two and a half million dollars uh, between them. And so, you know, between the equipment and the business, the receivables, a little bit of cash in the balance sheet, we really got the business for about 70 cents of orderly liquidation value. And again, Values of 2012, not today. Those buildings today are worth far, far more than that. But in those days, it was still a very slow, you probably remember, a very slow recovery out yeah. of what was a very uh, deep recession. So we financed it. And this is where you get to the, you know, the tiger. This is this is how we talk. We had saved up $400,000 of cash, okay? So wow. we financed $2.8 million. And, wow. and the same banker who referred me to the deal is the one who financed it. So if he wasn't crazy enough to refer to me in the first place, he doubled down and actually lent us $2.8 bucks to do it. But he believed in us. And, and he to this day, he's a very close friend of mine. And, and he says when you small business lending, which is what they do, they bet the jockey, not the horse. And, right. and so he, he believed in what we are going to do, bring the right management team in, uh, right guy to run it. And, and he believed in us. So first two years, I didn't take a salary out of the business, Jay. I mean, it was a grind. It was, we, we turned it profitable the very first month. We closed one plant and we brought everything under one roof. Holly and I leased those, we owned the buildings outside of the operating company. So we leased that plant out to another tenant, which worked out great. And then just worked, worked hard on lean manufacturing, trimming down our customer list, um, 
you know, the, the quick short stories. The day we bought it, $8 million in revenue trailing 12 months with 230 customers. The day we sold it, it was a $30 million business with 10 customers. Yeah, right? I, I remember so, that. We talked about this about, about three or four months ago. So now go over those numbers again with me because that was yeah. very, very important. Yeah, Don't so ask day, you. Dig in a little know, bit. The, the day we bought it, it was really a job shop welding business, right? And they would say yes to everybody. So it was $8 million in total revenue, not making money, right? It was, it was losing money with 230 customers. In the first 90 days, we got rid of 100 customers just, wow. I mean, just out of the gate. But the tail of the road is it's the 80-20 operating philosophy, right? 20% of your customers give you 80% of your revenue, right? 20% of your customers are 80% of your profit. And it, it's a universal principle, and we believe in it. We in, we implemented it and, and, and you know, live and breathe it. So we trimmed it down. We, you know, we got closer to our best customers and said, what are you not getting from your current suppliers that you'd like to see, right? So we we grew with them, and every year when we we grow a little bit more, trim off a few more, grow, grow a little bit more, trim mm. off a few more. And, and so, and I could go back and dig the data, but I think in two years, we were down under 30 customers after the first 24 months. Um, and so and that's what we did. And, and ultimately, you know, as the economy really grew in 15, 16 and 17, a lot of it was actually one of our customers was in the fracking, you know, supply to the fracking business and they were growing as, as oil shot up. And so, um, you know, we kept doing more and more for our biggest and best. And as we did, we would get rid of the noise. And so what happened is our margins got better, right? Every time you do that, your margins get better. We didn't add any overhead. We just grew. Uh, we implemented robotic. Well, there's a lot of operational things that that Rob, my, my business partner, brought to the table, put our own powder coat system in, um, you know, did a lot more value add. We did, did assembly. We were building whole zero-turn lawnmowers by the end, uh, you know, entire pieces of welding equipment company wasn't doing when we bought it so now, well, Alex, wait a minute now okay so you buy the business it's doing eight million yeah. two or thirty customers and yeah. then you start turning business away right i right. mean how how can you do that i mean it's like right. i'd be freaking out so much and going i'll do anything for anybody imaginable right. just bring it to me i'll do you know yeah so, no, so it's, how it's, did you why did how did you think okay now we need to go to i mean ten thousand dollar minimum ticket or something i mean there's got to be Somebody right. there that said something, who was it that came up with that? Yeah, so so the 80-20, I mean, it's a universal principle, but locally, th- there's one of my mentors and, and great business heroes is a man named Mike Weller. Mike ran uh, what was Miller Electric. It's now ITW Welding. And, and Miller went from a $200 million privately held family business that, you know, single digit margins to a billion eight with 30% gross margins, right? He, he, and he is a master at 80-20. He's a mentor of mine. Um, and a great friend. And so it's hard to think about that, especially in a turnaround when, you, you know, that was a, that was the leap of faith, if you will, for me to borrow $2.8 million to pledge your house, everything that you have and, and <laughs> take 100 customers out of the equation. But what we found, Jay, is by taking 100 customers, I don't remember the exact number, it was like 50,000 in revenue. It was, it was, it was just noise in the business. And so what our employees, the way they rallied around this, kind of switching from the business strategy to how it felt as an operator you know we were running overtime we'd make parts bad and it was always that one-off part that we only got the order for once a year or that that customer that just it was like three thousand dollars in revenue but they just complained all the time or it was a part that our equipment couldn't manufacture but someone had bid or quoted and said oh we can do that for five dollars so really what we did we called it weed the garden but we took the noise out of the business and so we did that Revenue went down fractionally, but holy cow, the resources that we freed up 
the, 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 our scrap went down dramatically. Uh, you know, we, we started buying fewer, you know, they had all kinds of inventory laying around of stuff that they never made because they would buy in bulk and then only make for one order, right? There's a lot of sort of bad business principles. So it's, it's a leap of faith. I, I, I grant you that when you, when you put your whole life savings at risk to start turning away business. But operationally, we did that. That's what freed up the capacity to bring the other plant under one roof and to get our team focused on our best customers. Wow, that's great. That's a great thought. Really, really is a good thought. So I mean, I'm just like trying to figure out, because you quadrupled sales. I mean, you went from yeah. from 8 million to 30 million in, in a few years. Yep. And all of a sudden doing it with less customers. Yeah, and, and some of our better numbers, I think after a year, I'd have to go back. It was year three or year four. We did just under 12, it was like 11.8 million. And we'd actually made a million and a half dollars, EBITDA. Okay? Wow. And, 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 you know, people were like, eight, you were losing money. How do you add three? And it was the 80-20 process. It was get rid of the noise, adding better, you know, better customers, better work, finding stuff that wasn't profitable, and leaning it out. We had, you know, used welding robots. We had, you know, brought our paint system in. So there was some operational things as well, but it was really 80-20. That, that's our core. That's how we built what we have. Right. Awesome. That's great. That's great. And so then you then – then you build it up, and then had you always thought about building it up and selling, or is it just something that somebody yeah. came by the store one day and goes, oh, hey, I'll give you X number of dollars, or, or did you always want to scale it and sell it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Jay. And I, because we're self-made, I don't know what you want to call it. We're self-driven, self-made. The goal with that company was to build it and ultimately exit. It was not, you know, my kids are, are 14 and 10. They're going to have to figure it out on themselves because I'm not leaving them anything, all right? They're going to have to – Figured out like Holly and I have figured it out, uh, tongue in cheek. But the goal was when we bought it, I brought up, you know, Holly and I own 100% of the company the day we bought it. But my partner, Rob, in the business was instrumental, right? He was, he was the key cog, he was the COO of the company. We ultimately added a CFO uh, to the business in 17, 2017, who became, again, very vested interest in the future of the company, right? So we, those guys had a great management team in place, and we knew there was ultimately going to be an exit at some point trying to figure out when that was, you know, what revenue numbers, but EBITDA, you know, the drill and how big we could get it with our own personal balance sheet. By the end of 19, we had paid the business off. We had about 400,000 of, of term debt left on a powder coat system. So everything else inside the company had been paid for, even though we'd borrowed another 2 million along the way to grow, you know, paint system, robots, et cetera, very capital intensive business. And so the belief was, Hey, when we we think it's the right time in the market, the company set up, right? Management team, we would exit the company. That was always the plan from day one. And, right. and the key executives were tied into that, that same program. Right, right. So did it, did it take you longer than you thought or? or? Yeah, <laughs> there are days in there. I don't know if it would ever happen. So you can ask, you know, <laughs> I, I think this, you know, in that process, in the sale process, I learned a, a lot. And I would tell you a lot of private equity firms, they say three to five years, but the reality most more seven to eight. And that's, that's what it takes. For us, the key to the timing it was eight, eight and a half years. There were two big keys. Number one, we had grown it to where we had added a second plant again. So after you know closing one plant, bringing all in one roof, we grew it. So we went and added a second plant, um, and that was great. The growth was great. We had a managed team. We get you know put a plant manager over there. It was a young man that we had grown and developed, so it was a great opportunity for him. But it got to the point where the next chunk of growth, Jay, was going to be another probably eight to ten million in capital, expanding the right. building second paint line, more lasers. And again, we're, we're self-made people. I, I don't have a rich uncle sitting somewhere that's, that's writing checks. So the idea for Holly and I, I'm just being candid with you, was not, 
hey, we're not trying to going to go bet the farm again. We built this. It's it's a valuable asset. It's a great business. And so that was that was half of the equation was the personal side for us. We just didn't want to double down again. We we'd risked it all once, and that was that was good. That's the great. Part, the second part was, you know, my management team was is they're still there today. Number two and number three at the acquiring company, they were rock solid. And so you know the, the growth rate, the trajectory was there. So uh, we went to market, and you'll love this. Uh, we went to market, um, you know, Q one of twenty twenty. I'm not sure if anybody told you, you know, but there was a global pandemic somewhere in about the end of Q1. So as good as the business was performing, as profitable was, everything was running, the, you know, the IOIs were coming in. And then, of course, everything just stopped. Right. Oh, so, well, for you guys, too. For, for us. Yeah. Because in, your business in our well. business, we didn't have negative $30 oil one day. But, but what we did have was. Uh, safer at home orders all over the country, which really shut the economy down. And so we couldn't get parts, right? We were deemed oh, an yeah. essential business as a manufacturer. We made critical components for many industries. So we were deemed essential. But with safer at home orders in effect in various areas, it was just a matter of time till we ran our supply chain out. So we ended up shutting down for a couple of weeks. We ran out of parts. Things started back up in May and, and the M&A process as well. So the business stopped. M&A, nobody was buying anything, right? It was, hey, we don't even know what the heck the world's going to look like. Nobody can be in the country, et cetera. So we, though, snapped back very, very strong. And so while it was a very scary time for many business owners, uh, the you know, Q2 of, of 2020, the COVID quarters, we called it, things did snap back and, and supply chains turned back on and we were able to get going. So Q3, uh, we had a great forecast for what the rest of the year was going to look like. We had, you know, we were running very, very efficiently at the time. And made the decision, okay, let's go back into our process. The number's not going to be as good as we wanted and had hoped, uh, but it's still going to be a great exit. Uh, very successful one for all the, the key shareholders and stakeholders in the business. And so we entered into an agreement. I think we signed the LOI in August, so so late into the middle of Q3 of 2020 and closed in December. Uh, great buyer. They were an equity-backed strategic acquirer and a wonderful CEO, so they didn't need me. Um, and they loved our management team and, and our customer list and, you know, in the business. So uh, that that's how it all went down. We closed December 14 of 2020. And, you know, again, Holland and I own a firm on real estate. So we kept both manufacturing plants. So we're still tied to the business. We're still very vested in the future. We're just not invested in the company. Right, right. So you own the real estate. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Coupon, please, the coupon link gives you, gives you enough. You got to keep up with real estate. You got to keep up with what's going on and gives you something to do, hang out. That's exactly right. Yeah. And right now, actually, it's funny. Here we are six months later. We're actually working on an expansion on the one platform because they were growing. They've kept the trajectory of the business going. Uh, the team was set up. It's one of those very successful stories where, you know, the day the buyer closes, everything has continued sort of up and to the right. And so we're going to put a 60, I think we're there. We're, we're very close to a 63,000 square foot expansion on for them. And, uh, and they're going to, you know, obviously lease that and, and keep growing the business. And, and that's great for the community. It's great for us. It's great for the people that bought it. That's, that's the win-win. So yeah. it's fun to stay connected to it, but not be there day to day. Right. Right. Exactly. Cause it's like, it's like, you know, a lot of companies now are, are, are buying the real estate within their lease. They're, they're selling the real estate, leasing it back. So that's guess right. that's kind of what they're doing. They're not really interested in real estate long-term. They're more interested in, and that, that, that earnings and sales and making money off the, off the split or whatever it is. And yeah, not, and not necessarily, 
especially manufacturing, dude, there's a lot of equipment, a lot of automation that can, you know, with the labor shortage in this country right now, it's very, very hard to find, you know, as a state, well, I, I use it locally. I think it's a state we're under 4% in Wisconsin, but here in Ottawa County, we're under three and a half percent unemployment. That, that's full employment. I know nationally they're, you know, just under six, but you know, our economy here is, is very, very, very strong. And so they want to invest their money in more welding robots, automation, right? As they grow, they still need people. Don't get me wrong. They're always going to have human beings at the heart of manufacturing, but they want to put their money there. They don't want it tied up in, in buildings and dirt, right? They'll let people like us own that and, and coupon flip. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So what, what's next? What's, what's in five years for Alex and Holly? That might be the first question you asked that I don't have the answer to, Jay. <laughs> you know, everyone that I have talked to, even pre-sale and after, and Tiger and another group I've been called YPO, said, take a year off. You know, eight, eight and a half years, I, I shared with you some of the tough moments. Uh, it always sounds great after the exit. These are fun to do. But there were some tough years. I mean, there was nights I slept on the couch, you know, coming home. My wife goes, man, you know, tell me how great it's going. But I haven't seen any return on it. She was growing her second company. Uh, and she scaled, scaled that pretty tremendously. We had young family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I put on 40 pounds and, you know, probably lost a bunch of hair along the way too. So it was, it's been a good, about halfway through it, a good year just to, to reflect, to, you know, re-engage with my kids. You and I talked, we both have daughters that play volleyball, traveling all over the, the country this past spring and summer. She and I have had a, just a wonderful time together. Um, look, I'm 43. There will be hopefully more things, right? Um, Right now, it's it, the economy's hitting on all cylinders. There's no value to be had. I shared with you the number one deal we bought it was we thought we were buying it really right. You can't buy anything right right now. And so I think it's been a great year to sit on the sidelines. Um, but we're, we're, I'm not done. I can't, I can't as I told the, my daughter, I can do this for six months. I can't do it for the next six years. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, um, all right, so who fought Saturday night in Vegas? The big McGregor? Yeah. Or, or they, they were saying, you know what? The guy didn't need the money, so it's going to be hard for him to fight at a level, at such a high level, and and win in such a big match. You know, like that. It's not just. It's not an easy. That's one of the hardest fights you'll ever do. Is is a MM, MMA right? MMA. Yeah, yeah, yeah you got it. Yep, so MMA. And, I, and I think that I think that portrays to what you and I do, and that is, you know, do I want to ever go risk it all again? No, right. but I won't. But right. if I don't, how hungry will I be? I mean, I would go in some mornings at two, three in the morning because I couldn't sleep because we had to solve. I mean, you're just driven, right? And I'm, I'm not an ex-military Marine, but as an athlete, the early morning, I mean, if I'm not in a situation where everything that I have is at risk, how driven can you? So Holly and I have spent some time thinking about that. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's weird to think about, but when you're used to it all being on the line every day, um, I don't know. I don't think I could just be a sitting CEO from a, you know, from a family business going from second to third generation or I, you know, that's not for me. It's either got to be a big turnaround or something that's hyper growth where you just immerse yourself in it. It's all you think about it, you know, and, and or, or you don't. The team and yeah. Or you don't. I mean, I know there's, there's a guy that I spoke to him in to go tiger guy and he's out of uh, Rhode Island and, and he just, he gets up in the mornings and he works out and he reads the papers and he just kind of hangs out at his, he's got a five o'clock, uh, you know, country club he goes to for drinks. And then the next day, I mean, it does that. That's what he does. But if you want to really immerse yourself into something and you want to win big, you got to gamble big or, or you got to put all it all in. And, and, and is that something that you really want to put yourself and your family through and all that stuff? Because why, you know, it's like, 
Man, don't want to to go through all that. That's all right, Jay. And and at the end of the day, never having to work again ever, it's all about what do you want to do with it and be driven. But I I think a lot about it. I think people that are successful do, especially at a younger age, you know, I go to the gym at 5 a.m. I take the kids school, but I can't go to the country clubs and have a cog. I drive myself nuts. I got four, my liver would be gone in 40 years, right? Uh, it sounds great. Um, it's funny. I'll tell you a quick story. When said, I like to play golf. I'm not very good, but I like to do it. We have two country club memberships, and at the two clubs, it's July 13th today. I have a total of zero rounds of golf at either country club, in, and I don't have a job, okay? So oh, I have yes. no excuse. And, and so I, I laugh when people say, that's what I want to do. Retire. It looks like I, I just know that's not for me, but I think about how can you, what's next. And, and the thing of how can you be all in totally committed without maybe risking everything? And, and I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. I don't have the answer to it yet, but that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. I thought about that in Vegas. Cause we just spent six days in Vegas. You know, we were there, I guess you were there. We pretty much the same time, I guess. Yeah. You know, our daughter's volleyball, and I was thinking about going to the crap table and the blackjack table, and I'm thinking, and do I really want to win big? Because if I got to win big, I got to risk a lot, you know. And I don't, right. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that six nights in a row. That's right. I, we put two hundred dollars on the Milwaukee Bucks, and I was biting my nails at two hundred bucks, Jason. How's that? <laughs> Man, I tell you what, uh, y'all are y'all are looking pretty good coming back. Yeah, moving back it's on Phoenix. Funnier, it's been fun here, Wisconsin. But just to your point, you know, you. You have an eight-figure exit. It's like what you know, but a two hundred-dollar bet on, on Giannis and the team. So, oh yeah, man, unbelievable, unbelievable. All right, so uh, I don't. What well, is okay? Last question: What would you tell your twenty-year-old self? You've heard that kind of question before. If you were going through school, and there's, yeah. is there anything that you would have, anything that you wish that you would have done differently, or anything that you'd tell yourself? I wouldn't have done anything differently along the way. I, I we played division two college sports. I, I graduated both my life and I debt free by getting half athletic, half academic. I believe that kids that are committed that achieve that would never have changed. It was some of the fondest memories of my life. What I would do a little bit differently, Jay, what I would tell anyone else, my 20 year old self, build your network, you know, growing up in a household, uh, my teacher, you know, the network was the school and the team and the town and it was rural, you know, we were relatively small town. You know, my seventh grade English teacher made a comment. I'll never forget it. Alex, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And and if I learned one thing in 12 years, 13 years of, of uh, school before college, that was it. The world is a is a huge place and and people are out there that genuinely want to help. And if they can bring value, they will. But along the way of those eight and a half years of building the company, there were a number of times where the YPO network, uh, other affiliations that I have, helped us make a big step up in the business. It was drive on the part of myself and my team, but build your network. Always take the meeting, always take the coffee, write the handwritten thank you note. Um, there is great value. It's not always immediate. You know, today they all want to look at their phone and know, am I good? Am I winner or loser today, right? Um, but over time, those relationships, and that network is. Oh, it's great. You're exactly right. Yeah. The, so we've had Bob Bodine on my show several times. He's a good friend. Has been for years, but he wrote the book Power of Who, The Power of Who, Bob Bodine, incredible guy. Also wrote two chairs, but anyway, uh, The Power of Who, but he talks about how your network is your net worth, you know, and I've heard that several times too, and that's exactly right, man. The smarter people you have, the better off you are, the, the more people you can reach out to to talk about what's going on and all that stuff, and People genuinely want to help you. They do. They want to be very, very helpful. And 
and but you got to reach out to them and talk to them about it. You know, so. you got to get over the nerves, Jay. Right? If I don't know if you know, I won't give you local successful names here, but my wife and I were very, we weren't even married, and we would call these people and go look at buildings with them, and they would take the time, and and we just had that. And so I think if I would have started that younger, that that is, I'd give it to any uh, advice to anyone or or my twenty year old self. Got to do that. Um, it also builds great um, skills in, in just getting uncomfortable, right? Reaching out to people. Maybe they don't all return phone calls. Most of them do, and most of them are absolutely willing to help. Yeah, no, exactly right. That's perfect. That is absolutely perfect. I love that a lot. I love that a lot because you're right. You're right. People do want to. People do care. They love you. They want to. They want to help you. They, they're 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 good people, man. They're they're good people. They put their clothes on just like everybody else and. One leg at a time or whatever they say in that, but um, and that's they, great. And they've all got problems. We've all got – I mean, it's amazing. We think of these Bezos and these wildly successful people. Some of you met, and I, and I met, they go, they, they got problems. They got problems like you and I do. Uh, what's yeah. that old rap song, more money, more problems? I mean, they got problems. They got to, you know, figure it out. And, and so I think that there's a common thought around a lot of young entrepreneurs or they haven't done or built a business yet is, boy, I want to be like that person. They, hey, they got problems just like you and I have. I will assure you of that. And so yeah. when you go to them and you talk to them and you approach them, they're willing to help. And 95% of the instances that, that I can relate to, they're willing to help. Right. People absolutely. help them. People help them along the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They've got mentors. I mean, they yeah. just didn't think of it themselves, and all of a sudden they're successful. It turned out overnight. No, they had people that they talked to, that they they reached out to. They they had help. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm 100%. That is awesome. All right, everybody. Hey, Alex Kowalski, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That is so good. I I've, I met you a couple of months ago on our Tiger, and, and I really enjoyed getting to know you more, and I want to make sure that we uh, we stay in touch. I want to have you back on the show again. Give me some more ideas about uh, how to connect, how to, how, to, how to grow your network. I love it. I love it, Jay. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a ton of fun today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Alex. Have you on again. Thank you. Bye. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. We start with the Delta variant, and it's now fueling a summer spike in coronavirus cases and, more importantly, hospitalizations. Now, the more contagious strain is now making up nearly 60 percent of new cases nationwide, with more unvaccinated people showing up at hospitals. Speaking of vaccinations, they are lagging down 54 percent from just last week. Experts are warning without high vaccination numbers, the Delta variant is here to stay. The Delta variant is going to move its way through the country over the course of August and September, maybe into October. Unfortunately, the worst is yet to come. It's going to get worse before it gets better in terms of the spread of this infection right now. NBC News health and medical reporter Erica Edwards joins us now. So, Erica, hospitals, especially in the South, are dealing with an increase in patients. What's the latest there? 
Hey, Joe, good morning. You know, you're going to see surges anywhere you have low levels of vaccination. Hospitalizations in Mississippi, for example, have doubled since July 4th. That state has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the country at just about 33%. Also worrisome there, the health officer, the state's health officer said that seven children are in the ICU with COVID-19. Two of those uh, children are on ventilators. Now, cases are also surging in places like Arkansas. It has a vaccination rate of just about 35%. In neighboring Missouri, cases are also surging. Their vaccination rate is at less than 40%. Health officials and nurses there are urging people who still have questions about the vaccine to talk with their doctors. If you're able to get vaccinated, you know, ask the questions that you have to a legitimate source so that you can be fully educated. I have not taken care of a fully vaccinated patient that's been on a ventilator. Now, overall, 59% of adults here in the U.S. have been fully vaccinated. Joe, back to you. So, Erica, I know you have some new reporting this morning on how the vaccines could prevent people from becoming COVID long haulers. Those are people who deal with the effects weeks, even months after first getting sick. What did you, do, what did you learn? Yeah, so we know the vaccinations can help reduce the risk of becoming severely ill, getting into the hospital, or even dying from COVID-19. That means even if you're infected after you're fully vaccinated, your illness is much more likely to be mild. But increasingly, I'm hearing from doctors nationwide that they are just not seeing cases of long COVID pop up following vaccination. Now, this is all anecdotal so far, um, but there is some preliminary data backing it up. Researchers at Washington University in St. Louis have been scouring databases, comparing millions of cases. And so far, their research is suggesting that the risk for becoming a long hauler following vaccination is very low. Now, there was one caveat I want to bring up. It could be that it's just too soon to recognize these cases because we really just started rolling out the vaccines a few months ago. Joe? And Erica, I have to ask you about my beat this week, the Olivia Rodrigo <laughs> beat, the Gen Z pop star. She was at the White House yesterday as part of a push to boost vaccinations, especially for younger people. What can you tell us about her visit? Yeah, that's right. The singer-songwriter was at the White House yesterday to record some videos encouraging young people to get the shots. Uh, those videos will later be released on her social media channels. Joe, I know that you follow all of those. Now, while she was there, <laughs> she stopped briefly to talk with reporters. Here she is. I am beyond honored and humbled to be here today to help spread the message about the importance of youth vaccination. Uh, I'm in awe of the work President Biden and Dr. Fauci have done and was happy to help lend my support to this important initiative. Joe, teens and young people across the U.S. have some of the lowest vaccination rates in the country. Back to you. Yeah, and I'm not the only follower. More than 28 million <laughs> followers she has, so quite a reach there. Erica, thanks so much. President Biden is pushing forward with Senate Democrats' $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan, meeting with that group on Capitol Hill yesterday to talk about how to move forward. Democrats are hoping to use a budget process to avoid a filibuster, as we've seen before, and therefore pass it without needing bipartisan support. President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer seem confident about the bill on their way into that meeting. We are getting this done. 
NBC News White House correspondent Mike Memoli joins us now. Mike, they say they are getting it done, but <laughs> these meetings, these negotiations have been going on for months, even with Republicans, of course, for a period of time. So explain where we're at right now. What are the two paths that the Senate is pursuing and what's in this $3.5 trillion version of a plan? Well, Savannah, certainly this was a big step forward for the White House as they move on this dual track strategy. You still have, uh, though it's important to note, no final legislative text has been written for either one of these two major proposals. But we know the broad contours of it. You have roughly $579 billion in that bipartisan package on traditional infrastructure, roads, bridges, expanding broadband access, as well uh, as replacing water pipelines across the country. That $3.5 trillion likely Democrats alone pa package has much more significant Democratic priorities, like expanding Medicare benefits to include uh, health uh, data, uh, excuse me, dental and vision benefits. You have uh, other significant climate provisions, which have been a big priority. Now, the priority here, of course, for the White House is making sure both of these run on time, because remember, he said he needs to sign both at the same time. Mm, absolutely. And now, Mike, we also know that President Biden had this meeting with governors and mayors at the White House. Of course, the types of officials that would be quite impacted by an infrastructure plan. And this came up. What do you say about it? Yeah, this is a, a meeting yesterday which shows you the dual strategies that the president is pursuing, meeting behind closed doors with Democrats on a piece of legislation that is going to only pass with Democrat support, uh, but then meeting with a group of Republicans and Democrats to push this bipartisan package. But it was during that meeting where he talked about his meeting with the Senate Democrat Democrats. Take a listen. I went up and spoke to the, the, uh, the, the Democratic caucus today and uh, and we put together a plan that dealt with infrastructure. And uh, it's a bipartisan plan. I think we're in good shape. There may be some slight adjustments to the, uh, the pay for it, and that's going to get down to what the, what the Congress wants to do. I've laid out how I think we pay for it, and we, we have an agreement. We have an agreement. There may be slight changes. I'm not sure what may happen, exactly how, but it's going to be paid for, and that's what we're going to do. And today, the president is going to be speaking about a temporary benefit that he hopes to make at least a little bit more permanent, that expansion of the child tax credit later today. Now, Mike, all right. The big question here, though, is how do any of these plans, any of these different paths that the president is pursuing really get the support that it needs? I mean, it's unlikely to get any Republican support, but there are members of his own party that have been wild cards. Does the president have the full support of the Democrats? You know, there's a few specifically that I'm asking about. That's right. Well, we heard yesterday from the leading progressives in the party, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, really ex expressing their strong support for this. What we have not heard as robustly is Joe Manchin, is Kirsten Sinema, mm -hmm. those moderates in the caucus. But remember, when the president passed that $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill in March, we were waiting up until the last second to know how they were going to vote. I expect the same will probably happen with this one as well, Savannah. All right. Mike Memoli, as always, thank you for your reporting. Good to have you. Texas Democrats are still making the rounds on Capitol Hill after fleeing their state to stall the passage of a restrictive voting rights bill. NBCNews.com senior reporter Jane Tim joins us with the latest on the drama here. So, Jane, the legislators met with Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock yesterday. What they talk about? Joe, they're laser focused on voting rights and voting rights federal legislation. They know that the minute they go back home to Texas, that bill gets passed, the one they oppose. And they also know that redistricting data drops August 16th, and that starts a whole nother battle. So they know that federal legislation is the only way they're going to accomplish their goals. 
But let's listen a little bit to what Senator Warren had to say about the conversation. I want to thank them for coming here Mm -hmm. to remind us in a very personal way how hard people are fighting across this nation to protect access to the vote. Those Texas legislators are here because they understand voting is the beating heart of our democracy. And the Republicans in Texas and Republicans across this country believe that the only way they can hang on to power is by keeping American citizens from voting. That's not how a democracy works, and it's up to us to fight back. Making it human is absolutely the goal. That's why they're going to be here and and be here for weeks. Yeah, these lawmakers have a highly anticipated meeting today with who else? Senator Joe Manchin, who (laughs) doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster, making it very hard to pass any of these federal laws on voting rights. What can you tell us about how these Texas Democrats are planning to approach that conversation? Absolutely. Now, as we remember, this is not their first conversation with the senator's office. They met with him several weeks ago, his office. They couldn't get a meeting with him the first time. Uh, But this is a delicate dance. They want to make it very personal. They want to show what they see as their plight, their struggles that they face back home to make this personal, as Senator Warren said. Uh, But it's going to be it's going to be careful because what they want is a carve out. Basically, the idea that filibuster rules don't apply to voting legislation like this. But Senator Manchin has shown absolutely no interest in that. So they're going to have to make the case for him to really flip flop on a dearly hold position that the senator has. I also want to ask you about another election story. This one's in Arizona, a new House Oversight Committee investigation. They're going to look into that controversial Republican led audit of the 2020 election results in Arizona. Remind us who's conducting that audit and what is this committee going to try to figure out? Yes. Yeah, so this is this is going to blow up this whole big audit. But this is the Arizona Maricopa County audit where third party contractors were hired by state Senate Republicans to look at those ballots. Now, we've been talking about conspiracy theories that were just ran wild throughout this audit. Bamboo in the ballot, Trump campaign, UV uh, watermarks on some of the ballots that proved fraud. Uh, really a controversial stuff, but a lot of secrecy. House Oversight Committee has subpoena power. I can't wait to find out what documents they get released. It'll be interesting. And you'll have to Google bamboo in the ballots if you don't know what that is. All right, Jane, thank you so much. All right. Wildfires in the West have burned through more than one million acres of land. The fires are being fueled by relentless heat waves, as we've been telling you about, in the most severe drought seen in years. NBC News correspondent Jake Ward has more. Good morning, Savannah. Good morning, Joe. You know, here in the West, we've gotten used to the idea that fire season is getting worse. But this season is especially terrible, driven by a combination of conditions and fundamentally caused by climate change. Dozens of wildfires raging out of control in the West. Gosh, we've had, what, three, four fires around here uh, in the last month, and it's kind of getting scary. Two million people under red flag warnings across five states. California, Idaho, Montana, Washington, and Oregon. The Bootleg Fire is the first official mega fire of 2021. It's burned more than 200,000 acres, doubling in size for four straight days. Now nearly seven times the size of San Francisco. And drought conditions in 94% of the West are making it all worse. It has never been this low. It really, truly is unprecedented. Lake Mead, only a third full, is lower than it's been since the 1930s. It's one of several depleted reservoirs across the Southwest. Climate change has a very strong fingerprint on exactly what we're seeing right now at Lake Mead. 
This weekend, authorities plan to close this boat ramp on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe, citing low water levels and danger to boaters. Without enough water in lakes and reservoirs, vegetation dries out and becomes ready fuel. It's like a stocked fireplace, tinder packed, ready to go up. Symptoms of climate change fueling the fires. This fire season is about six weeks ahead of schedule. Outbreaks behaving like they typically would in August or even September. Now, these individually would be bad enough. We're talking here about drought, triple-digit, record-breaking temperatures, and extraordinarily dry vegetation. But the fact that they are all converging together to create these terrible fire conditions means this could be a very tough summer. Savannah, Joe? Yeah, I have a feeling that will be the case. Jake Ward, thank you so much. With that, let's get a check on your morning news now, weather out west and around the country. Bill, we said it yesterday, but you've had quite the intro to your segment each day because this news is just crazy and it's not letting up. Yeah, just wait till I show you the video of the water rescues and the flash flooding in Arizona. But first, mm. we'll talk about the fires, and I'll show you that incredible pictures. So here's the map that shows where all the current fires are right now. Oh, actually, here, we'll show it to you now. Um, this was in Arizona from a flash flood. Oh, I'm going to go backwards. <laughs> all right, so 65 active large fires out there across the country. We have more than 2 million acres that have burned already. We were showing you and talking about, we saw the amazing satellite picture from that bootleg fire, just the plume of smoke in that story. That's just north of Klamath Falls. That's the one that's 200,000 acres. There's also the Beckworth Complex fire. Those are the two biggest fires burning in the country. That one is just to the northwest uh, of Reno. And that's, uh, again, another mega blaze. But this bootleg fire is seven times the size of San Francisco. And it's just very early for a fire this big in the season. It's only at 5% containment right now, too. And as far as today goes, red flag warnings. Red flag warnings are really what tells firefighters that if a fire forms, it could spread rapidly. And that's going to be the case today in areas of the interior Pacific Northwest. Now, let me show you that video. So we've had flash flooding in the last two to three days in areas of Arizona. And this was in Catalina, Arizona yesterday. This uh, dad was in his car with his two daughters and got stranded in this flash mm. flood. If you notice, the firefighter closest to the vehicle has one of the daughters in the white there in his arms. The dad's on top of the roof wow. with his other daughter. He does safely hand his youngest daughter to the firefighters, and they do slowly walk mm. uh, to shore. When they were in this vehicle, it washed down the road 25 to 50 yards, so they're lucky it didn't flip over. That could have been a deadly and could have been a disaster. Uh, I'm sure mom is very thankful for those oh, firefighters yes. and that rescue there. So... Yeah, again, we could see some isolated flash flooding in areas of Arizona today, but it won't be as bad as it was yesterday. But uh, it's that time of year where we get those uh, isolated pop-up storms there in Arizona. But, uh, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty uh, you know, breathtaking. Imagine being that mom and hearing that story and seeing those pictures. Yeah. At least they were able oh. to get to the roof, too, to yeah. give them a little bit of uh, make it a little easier to yeah. rescue them, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, imagine that, a dad getting, you know, pulling your kids up on top of the roof. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, kudos mm. for him for uh, yeah. having a cool head and doing that. Yeah. That rescue is worth the wait and the back and forth. The video, the map, the video, the map. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Susan. Britney Spears is celebrating after a victory in court. A judge granted her the right to hire her own lawyer. The decision came during Wednesday's conservatorship hearing, during which Spears offered more tearful testimony by phone. She demanded that the court remove her father, Jamie Spears, from the conservatorship and called for him to be charged with conservatorship abuse. Spears said every part of her life was controlled under the conservatorship and that, quote, their goal was to make me feel crazy and I'm not. 
Judge granted her request to hire celebrity attorney Matthew Rosengard, who called on Jamie Spears to step down from the conservatorship. Through his attorney, Jamie Spears refused to step down, saying he loves his daughter and he only wants the best for her. After the hearing, the singer took to Instagram to thank her fans for their support, posting a video of her horseback riding and also doing cartwheels. Mm. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes.